I'm Jacob Tender. I'm Mike Comite. Well, welcome back to Bantha Fodder. This is episode 39. Today, we close out season two of The Mandalorian on Disney Plus with chapters 15 and 16, The Believer and The Rescue. I did watch those. Those are the episodes that I watched and those are the episodes that we're talking about today. Oh, good. It has been long enough that I'm a little worried that I've, I've forgotten a lot of the detail. I thought about maybe skimming them. I truly had a difficult time remembering which episodes we <laughs> talked about last episode and which episodes we're supposed to yeah. talk about for today. It's just... We're also reviewing these long after they came out. So like anybody with any useful things to say has already said it. And we're just adding to the noise. Clearly, you know, we have to be consistent. But this is why I make the notes as I'm watching the episode. Yeah, this is why <laughs> I rely on you to write the notes while you're watching the episodes. So as Mike mentioned, uh, it's been a couple weeks, I think, maybe since this has come out. Um, the the holidays are, are sort of coming to a, an end here. Um, Mike, how was your, your Christmas and New Year break? Oh, um, I mean... As, as good as it could be, I think, you know, oven broke on Christmas uh, day, so it couldn't really oh, no. do anything and still have no oven. How was your New Year's? It was good. I mean, everything was low key. Obviously, COVID really impacted the holidays, uh, really limited how much exposure we could have to our, our friends and family. I have a better question, I guess. What Star Wars themed gifts did you get this year for Christmas? <laughs> well, as, as I think I've mentioned on the show before, one of my mother's co-workers annually gives me Star Wars figures, which I believe are like duplicates from his collection. Uh, I, I swear at some point I will have him on the show so we can actually get to the bottom of this really nice gesture that I forget about every single year until I'm exchanging gifts with my mom and she pulls out this extra bag from Mark. <laughs> so Mark, if you're listening, thank you again for um, for these wonderful figures this year. I got some pretty cool sets. I got the ghosts on Dagobah at the end of Jedi as well as a set of uh, Rebel pilots, including uh, Wedge and Tilly's. So some pretty cool Power of the Force sets, some figures that I wished I had as a kid and never did, and now I do. Um, so pretty thrilled with those. On top of that, though, the, the big one for me was this uh, was this puzzle, which is cool. My mom got me this, this Star Wars puzzle. May and I have been talking for weeks about getting a puzzle, and we couldn't decide on which puzzle to get. Uh, my mom made that decision for us, and she got us one of Boba Fett, sort of overlooking the arrival of the Millennium Falcon on Bespin. I finished it in like less than 48 hours. I really just kind of <laughs> went hard. That's impressive. I did most of it. May helped a little bit, but she took more breaks than I was willing to take because I, I get very focused on tasks like that. So I was working on that. We watched two original trilogy Star Wars movies. Then she fell asleep, and I watched the Lego Star Wars Holiday Special that came out last year, which was really good. Um, I love the Lego Star Wars stuff. When you say last year, it came out like early holiday season, like, you know, a, a month ago, right? Yes, we're we, recording in 2021. Yeah, we're, I mean, by four days. I have to repeat these things or I will forget when I'm, I'm back at work. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, a, a couple of weeks ago, they put out the Lego Star Wars Holiday Special, which was really cute, really fun. Um, they're very funny, these specials, and they don't hold back at making fun of, you know, the tropes and the uh, sort of the inside jokes in, in Star Wars. I, I feel like they're taking Lego Star Wars in a direction that is closer to Star Wars Detours, that television show where a bunch of episodes were produced and never released. Probably one of the last things that George Lucas actually worked on. I would highly recommend it to anybody with kids, especially. It's definitely like a kid's show, but it's it's good for old fans as well. 
So, yeah, that was that was mostly my break. Um, some follow up from last episode. We well, not last episode exactly, but we've been kind of honking our horns about the uh, the Duel of Fates review that we did. Duel of the Fates, sorry, uh, the the Trevoro script, the Colin Trevoro script that was unused for episode nine. And I think in that, at the end of it, we were saying like, oh, it would be, what do we do with the script? You know, and. Uh, one of the conclusions you had was that it should be an animated thing. And someone yeah. did animate Duel of the Fates <laughs> in, like, to a degree. They pick and chose a, a couple of interesting scenes and took a lot of creative liberties. They didn't have, any, there's no voice acting besides, it's just one guy narrating and doing a bunch of voices. <laughs> yeah, the guy's name is uh, Mr. Sunday. He has a, a YouTube channel called Mr. Sunday Movies. Um, I'll link to it in the show notes. It was fun. He actually did this back in March. So, obviously, people had this idea before we did. Uh, like we said in our episode, we as we do, uh, came to the, the topic a little bit late. But um, obviously, like, the liberties kind of punched up the comedy quite a bit. Well, this part's where he's just like, oh, okay, I mean, like, the animator, is this going to be too hard to animate? And the animator's like, yes, it is. And so they just don't animate stuff. <laughs> and it's, so it's like, it, it, it's just, it's like Lego Star Wars, basically, in, in terms of how it looks. So, like, don't expect going into this, like, you know, something. I mean, it is ridiculously well done. I think the animator is very talented and, and all that stuff. But, yeah. you know, it's like, it's not meant to be taken seriously. It's just meant to give you a summary of the... Yeah, the animation style is very cute. It was a fun watch, you know, and it did give some... Like, I think the biggest reason I think we talked about having that kind of animation thing happen with this script is that it's like reading a book. You know, your mind can go as far Mm -hmm. and your mind can be amazing when you're reading a book. But there's that part of you it's like when you're reading Harry Potter you're like man I really would like to see this in real life or something yeah especially with a movie like this that has so much action right like you can imagine conversations between people you can imagine certain sorts of scenes but it it takes a little bit more than imagination it takes some planning and some some creativity to create those action sequences uh in a way that you can you can really visualize it fully instead of you know I I feel like action sequences seem a lot shorter when you read them rather than actually see them so I, I think yeah, I, I think that's where the benefit would be. Do you think like Daisy Ridley and like Oscar Isaac could appear in an animated series? Like if someone, if they, out of the goodness of their hearts, were like, I would love to voice act. No, no actor in the right mind should ever do this, especially one as big <laughs> as these two actors. But like, what if someone was like, I have a fully animated feature. I've poured the last four years of my life into this. And all it really needs right now is Daisy Ridley and Oscar Isaac to do the voices of their characters. And, and you know, we just need, we just need the original cast to come back and do these voices. Will you guys do it? And in some um, insane world uh, where, you know, actors don't feel like they need to be paid or whatever, or they need to be paid like five bucks for doing this. Oscar Isaac's like, yes, I will do this. I will voice Poe Dameron in The Duel of the Fates. Do you think they would be legally like, withheld from doing that? I feel like Disney owns them and those characters. I, I, think, I think so. I mean, there's nothing stopping the animator from, from creating that work, right? right? And there's nothing stopping from the animator from getting people to do voice acting for that work, even if it's using characters, because you, know, you could always use parody or... You know, there's any number of loopholes that could get around some independent filmmaker or animator or storyteller to to use those characters in that way. But it's an interesting idea getting the actual actors to come and do the voice work. I don't know. I feel like those people would be more legally tied with contracts. I don't know. Like, what if, like, Funnier Die did a parody video? I mean, I, I think there are, like, authorized examples of this. Um, I'm thinking of SNL and Adam Driver. Yeah, okay, I get that. That Yeah, so I guess they hide behind parody law, like, all they can, all they can. Like, clearly, Matt, the radar technician, or whatever his name was, like, that was a joke about Star Wars, and they're using the name yeah. Kylo Ren, but they're not doing it to confuse the audience in the sense of, like, 
selling something else. Like it's, it's a weird fine line and they have a whole legal team behind it. Something that I feel like a small animator would not have, would you not know, have. like that's the thing is like <laughs> you can, you can use parody law all you want and like, uh, what's it called? Uh, fair use or whatever you can, you can find all that and, and use it, but you have to be willing to go to court to argue it. And that costs a lot of money and takes a lot of time out of your life. So, you know, it's a lot of people just resolve, well, it's not worth it, you know, and that's what I feel like would any right. small animator would do. Unless that small animator was Lauren Michaels. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if he'd still be a small <laughs> animator at that point. Yes. Yeah, uh, clearly we need a parody expert to make the Star Wars animated full version of Duel of the Fates. I think that's where we can conclude this. Yeah. The, the other thing about that Duel of the Fates script is that there's this character named Torvalum, very distinct look, very distinct description, who's apparently showing up in... in comic yeah there uh it looks like issue eight of the the current darth vader run in the marvel comic universe is uh which is not on marvel unlimited which is why i have not read it yet (laughs) yeah no me neither the cover of it looks pretty clearly torvalum i mean i have not read this i haven't read any descriptions about it i'm just going off the cover did you read the tweet though that it's that that's accompanies this image yeah so it says hungry for vengeance after his brutal punishment at the hands of the emperor can vader uncover his master's secrets in the depths of mustafar so that's the first thing is that torvalum was not on mustafar right torvalum was on some other planet right but the image that we're seeing on this cover is clearly Mustafar, lava everywhere, Vader walking around with a, va- with a lightsaber. But the 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 Torvalum-esque character is on top of a head uh, statue, like a fallen yeah. statue, which is pretty vivid imagery from the script. And there is a one reply that I'm looking at here. It says, WTF, that looks an awful lot like Torvalum from Colin Trevorrow's rejected episode nine script. So I don't know. Speaking of, of contracted and you being obligated, like your idea is being property of Disney or whoever or Fox or whatever when you do something. That is what I'm thinking happened is that all the good ideas that Colin Trevorrow came up with that didn't get used. Well, that's how both Star Wars properties are created, right? They're, they're made they're made half from previous ideas that, that weren't used and half new ones. And then half of those new ones are going to you know be recycled later on down the road. That's just kind of how Star Wars has always worked and has always... I, I think that's a, a, a good way for a franchise to maintain some sort of um, you know through line in consistency and design. Uh, sort of dragging a little bit along down the road as you create new things. It's a mixture of the new and the old and that continues on and on for 50 years and well, that's how you get a, a franchise that's consistent. Looking at it from a purely transactional perspective, though, I mean, Disney paid Colin Trevorrow for the script. They gave him exec- or like writing credit on the thing. They technically, they bought those ideas fair and square from him. They didn't end up using them, but they bought it from him. So they're like, well, it's ours. We're going to use this character design that you came up with and this imagery and everything. It's effective. People like it. So, you know, let's, let's give it some life. And I, I personally probably think Colin Trevorrow would like that. Um, you know, like it, it yeah. uh, maybe it sucks not having his ideas on the big screen, but, you know, I, I personally find these Vader comics to be you know, more fulfilling than, than the movies have been. So, you know, um, I think it's a good thing that he ended up somewhere. I, I do too. Tor, I mean, Torvalon was my favorite part of the script. And yeah. for that to get canonized is, is pretty cool. I'm interested in seeing how they get Torvalum to, to exist in canon, right? Because his existence, he, he basically outlived Palpatine. Whereas in this comic, that is not the case. You know, Palpatine is, is in power at this time. This isn't even after Palpatine's initial fall. So this follows the, the line of Vader's, I don't, I don't know if doubt is the right word, but his uh, his search for leverage over Palpatine as Palpatine 
I think has his own doubts about Vader and is, you know, we, we know the Palpatine is looking potentially to replace Vader. It's been shown in the comics. We know that from Jedi. So figuring out where Tor Valum falls into this and how big of a role he can possibly play. I mean, or if his name is even going to be Tor Valum, there's, there's so many things this sure. is, we're, we're extrapolating. We're guessing again, we're, we're, we're looking at things that we can't possibly know yet. We could, because I think this issue is very much on sale and anybody listening to this might've already read it and just screaming at themselves. His name is not Tor Valum or like, uh, they did just use the right. character design, you know, like it's really, you know, I'll know in a, like four months when it's on Marvel <laughs> Unlimited, but you know, uh, <laughs> right now we're just guessing. And I have so many to catch up on. It's probably going to be longer for me. Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, it could be anything. Um, It'll be exciting to see what it is. But yeah, it's just an yeah. interesting... It was exciting enough just yeah. to see that character on the cover, whether it's Torvalum or, sure. or something similar. Um, it's a cool design. Okay, moving on. There were a couple of videos that came out recently celebrating 40 years of Empire. Oh, yeah. uh, Empire Strikes Back 40 year anniversary was actually back in May. Um, but towards the end of the year, they put out a couple of, of videos. One had a bunch of really cool behind the scenes footage. Like extended scenes and stuff. Yeah, these these are neat. Not not like a, a whole lot to say on them, but you know, being able to see any kind of new, quote unquote, new footage from a movie that's forty years old is always fun. Um, there's a cool couple of cool outtakes with Han Solo and C-3PO. Um, yeah, I, these are these are a good watch. Really really quick short things, but thought it was worth putting in the notes. Mm-hmm. Um, moving into actual Mandalorian stuff. Yeah, which is uh, what this we're is a lot of follow up. We're, we're kind of catching up because we, we recorded quite a few episodes, uh, sort of in one go. So some of these things have been piling up. But Dave Itzoff interviewed Tamura Morrison on The Mandalorian recently. Tamura Morrison is the actor who played uh, Jango Fett. Boba Fett, Jango Fett. Boba Fett in The Mandalorian. Um, for anybody who's concerned or confused about that name. Yeah. Uh, it was a cool interview. It was a short one, but it was it was good. It seems like he's just very grateful to have been called back for this. Obviously, like he knows that he could have been replaced. Uh, there was one quote that I really liked uh, where he said they could have called The Rock. <laughs> I felt so grateful that after all this time, something came to be. He's right. <laughs> it would have been so easy to just call it The Rock and have him suddenly be Boba Fett. I feel like that's maybe like too high profile. They could. Let's be real. They could not have afforded The Rock. <laughs> I think they could afford The Rock. No, look who they're. I mean, this is an amazing series, and it is a, it is a great work. I think, but I don't think that they could afford The Rock. To be honest, like Disney could write a check for sure for The Rock. You know. Yeah. But is it in the budget for the TV right, show? Right. Yeah. That, that's 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 yeah. that. That's my point. Is that no? I mean, they're they're going for the guy <laughs> from what's it? Bean uh, from Alien. Like they're going from Terminator guy. Like oh, they're going Bean. for yeah. Carl Weathers. Like right. It, you know, they're going for people who are just loving to do this work. That's that's really who they're going for. And The Rock does not need a Star Wars movie. He doesn't need it. Um, I'm not sure that Tamara Morrison needs it either, but he was really grateful that he got called back. Well, I mean, like, he's he's doing... Like, Tamara Morrison's working, but he's not, like... Yeah. I, I don't imagine he has, like, roles being offered to him throughout the year. You know, like, I feel like The Rock mm-hmm. probably turns down... For every role The Rock takes, he turns down 50, you know? Mm-hmm. And I don't feel like a lot of the actors on the Mandalorian are getting that, you know, I think, um, Rosario Dawson, like probably she is probably one of the more wild casting things I've seen on the show. Like as far as like, how do they get her? You know, like even Pedro Pascal, I I don't even know. Like, I think like being like having cameos or like parts on the Mandalorian is one thing, but being like the lead in in a star Wars feature, like that is way more enticing. And I feel like, I mean, I feel like if you were going to make The Rock the lead in this show, you'd have a better chance than than 
bringing the rock in for like two episode arc at the end of the series or whatever no uh, no i see what you're saying like it is interesting like i he he he's being self-deprecating by saying they could have called the rock and he's right i think right he's right in the <laughs> sense that they could have called somebody else who looks younger and fitter or like or for the role but like as a fan of his work and like as a fan of him his, his acting um i just think there's nobody else that that they like his self-deprecation is very cute but he there's nobody else they should have or could have asked to do this role like he's perfect for it in every way his accent is amazing well he talked about some of that too he talked about like his his background coming from the maori nation of new zealand Mm -hmm. Um, those are like the indigenous people there uh he he referred to them as like the the down under polynesians i Mm -hmm. think (laughs) which gives more humor to they could have called the rock who i believe is samoan yeah so that is that is cool he was able to bring a lot of you know his traditional background to this role um specifically with like his his training in the dance and their like traditional weaponry Mm mm-hmm I like that he was able to to bring that to the character because it adds a lot more depth to Boba Fett than what we've had before. That was something you remarked on in our last review of The Mandalorian in the, in the what is it called, The Tragedy, whatever that episode was called. Um, the fighting, you were really enamored by this, the Stormtrooper battles. The staff work, yeah. His his right to take this role is really just his, his <laughs> background and his... Yeah, he's making it his own. You know, whether or not uh, the role was always his, like he, he was... He was not the first person to play the character of Boba Fett. And, you know, very sadly, the original character who did play Boba Fett, Jeremy Bullock, passed away at age 75 very recently. Um, yeah, I was bummed when that happened. <laughs> but he did see the return of the character to the screen, right? Or I mean, I don't know what state he, he was in when he passed, but, you know, hopefully he knew. He did see uh, the character return to screen. Um, he missed the end of the season, which is, is pretty unfortunate. I think he would have been really excited about how the end of this season for that character played out. But um, I'm glad he was able to see that. Sure. You know, so Tamara Morrison, he wasn't the first person to play the character, but, you know, canonically, like he he was the clones, right? <laughs> yeah. So this is his character to, to take and make what he will. Um, right. He's given the opportunity to flesh out a character that never really had that opportunity before. So I'm glad that he's able to, to bring something new to that. Sure. Something that um, anybody else who had that role may not have had. Totally. Last couple things on this. Uh, there was There's just been a little bit more news on Disney plus Star Wars TV. Uh, Disney Gallery season two has is, is arrived on the platform. Uh, I actually just finished up the first season because I, I left a couple of episodes hanging and just sort of forgot to, to get back to it. But over the break, I had the time. And man, the Disney Gallery series is so good. It just It's such a wonderful thing that they do in addition to the show to contemporaneously record documentary footage and, you know, to... To document the to the making of something is one thing, but to actually have everybody sit down and discuss in a roundtable fashion the making of the show and their influences and and how George did things and how they, they use that to influence how they do things now. Uh, I've talked about it before. I will surely talk about it again. It's a great series, and I'm really looking forward to watching the the second run of this for season two of The Mandalorian. I, I think it's it's safe to say that like if you listen to this podcast or any other Star Wars podcast, you're probably going to be into the gallery stuff. And Absolutely. The, the Mandalorian is the selling point, I feel like you know, in addition to all the other things on Disney plus, but like the Mandalorian is the product they're selling. There's no reason they need to make a gallery series. There's no reason that like, no one's asking them to do that. No one expects them like, like the fans love bonus features on DVDs and making ofs and things like that. And the people who thirst after it will go find it on the DVDs. But like, Nobody asked them to make such a great program with such in-depth analysis of how they're making things. And I think it's such a great 
thing that they do it. And and they come at it from so many angles too. It's not just like they're they're not just talking about you know specifically the Mandalorian and the story of the Mandalorian. They go into the technology behind it and their methodology and writing characters mm-hmm. and and creating characters. You know, and like the shops and the production. Um, it, it's a really good behind the scenes look for any production of this kind, like whether it be about the Mandalorian or something else, like this really shows you how that works uh, as well as a a really cool behind the scenes look of the volume that, you know, that basically wall of screens, which they use to to create all the backgrounds and stuff as they, they shoot just watching the technology behind that and how it's used and how it's really changed, how quickly and how, how easily they can adapt uh, while filming a show like this is is fantastic. It's really cool. I think looking at The Mandalorian, you take a lot of stuff for granted that you're looking at in the mm-hmm. show as like on location shots or like, oh, this looks right. like a digital effect or like this is a practical effect or whatever, you know? And I think they just want to, like there's something about being a, a, the maker of something like that where you're like, actually, I, I want to show you how clever we were or like how insane it is that we made it look this well done. Like it's yeah. just, uh, I think that that's part of what feeds it and what also makes it super fascinating to watch. Exactly. And I think Disney, more than most companies, really enjoys being able to show off the work that their people do and whether that's for investment reasons or because they're really actually proud of the work that the people that they hire can accomplish. There's something to that. And when Disney plus first came out, most of the content that I was absorbing were documentaries about how Disney works. The Imagineering documentary was incredible. That's still my favorite, like one of my all time favorite things on the platform, being able to see how the parks work and, you know, Pixar works and all of these different factions of the Disney conglomerate all approach different aspects of the business with such care and such intention. Um, that's something that can easily be lost when you're walking through the park. You don't really, you're like, yeah, this looks really cool. Um, downtown Disney is a, a really neat set, so to speak, but to see how that came to be and how it's evolved over time and how they create the parks with, with such intention is it's magical. Like there's no other way to explain it. The way that the, the Disney corporation approaches certain things is so unlike anything else in the world. And that's, what's made them the powerhouse that they are. And now that they own properties like Marvel and, and star Wars, I hope that they're able to continue that ethos within those properties. And I I think the gallery series and, and how they're highlighting the Mandalorian is a good example of that and how you can leverage technology and you can leverage people from different backgrounds in order to create something that's amazing. And yeah, I, I'm grateful they do this. I hope that they do selfishly. Like I really want them to continue the Disney gallery series for other shows too. Yeah. Now that I know we're getting more star Wars and Marvel and, uh, an original series on Disney plus, I hope that they can somehow manage to <laughs> produce an entire season of behind the scenes and, and documentary content for all of those shows as well. But even if it's just the Mandalorian, it's a really cool peek behind the curtain. Mm-hmm. For sure. Last bit of follow-up before we actually move into The Mandalorian. Another Mandalorian character, Fennec Shand, is joining The Bad Batch. That's that Clone Wars spinoff that we talked about before. The animated series. Yep. The character is joining The Bad Batch, I believe. Um, is the actor? The character is also being played by the original actor who, whose name I forgot to write down in the notes. <laughs> but it, it's cool. Like, the, you know, this character is, as we know, and we'll talk about soon, like this character is going to be appearing in now several shows, <laughs> presumably on Disney+. Plus. Sure. I mean, it's like Saw Gerrera, right? Kind of like inverse Gerrera, yeah. where we saw Saw originally in 
Clone Wars. And did he show up in Rebels? Uh, yeah, I, I believe he's in Rebels. And, you know, we saw him in, in Rogue One as well. He's popped up in a bunch of places. Yeah, this is very similar. Yeah, so we're so just seeing kind of the inverse. We're going from TV, live action to animated, which is, I mean, not uncommon because that's the entire Clone Wars is based on characters from the live action uh, movies. But yeah, it's, a, it's cool to see new characters that are created in this new kind of expanded universe that we're seeing um, kind of moving around the series. And I'll put the interview on starwars.com with the actress Ming-Na Wen uh, in the show notes. So you can check that out. Beautiful. Pretty cool. She's having a good year. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. Um, So should we move into our dissection of the last two chapters of The Mandalorian? Absolutely. Okay. So, first up, chapter 15, The Believer. And let me just say this first before we get into this. I was a disbeliever in the concept of this episode. If you listen to our our last uh, episode on The Mandalorian, uh, when we found out Bill Burr would be returning for this episode, <laughs> and I gotta say, gonna shove my foot in my mouth as far as it can go, because this is my probably if not my favorite, very close to my favorite episode of the entire Mandalorian series. Oh, wow. Right here. Yeah. That's great. You and I, I think, were like, I guess, okay, Bill Burr is coming back. And like, in my head, I did not like his character the first time around. I was totally sold on him this time. Like, I don't know if he came back to the production, like super grateful to be back or something, like surprised that he was coming back. But he just, like, I think he just ratcheted his character up to a different level. Or, like, we got to spend more time with him and, like, less superficial time with him. And uh, he yeah. sold me completely on this guy. Yeah, I, I, the point of this episode, obviously, was to flesh out this character for, for some sort of reason. So I wouldn't be surprised if this is, is the, you know, this isn't the last time we see him in the show. I, I have a feeling he'll be back. Yeah. Um, okay, so we open on Mayfield, who is Bill Burr's Bostonian in space character. Uh, he is working in a New Republic scrapyard as a prisoner, which is something I didn't put together at first. I was like, oh, yeah, he's on an... I, I see prisoner camps and things like that in Star Wars, and I just assume automatically that they are uh, Imperial. And there's also, like, scrap tie parts and stuff in this, so I just assumed it was an Imperial camp. I think there's there's a point to that, right? I think this is continuing to, yes. to show us that, like, what is the difference between the New Republic and the Empire? Exactly, man. You could argue that for an entire episode uh, with lots of examples, <laughs> but it is a cool little thing just to, to make you think, because he is there and he's just kind of tying... He's, it looks like he's taking a door off of a tie or something. It's just prison uh, labor. You know, it's just it's yeah. just the most banal of tasks that are just designed to be partially busy work and maybe some productive scrap meddling. Like, we don't think about the people that are taken prisoner by the Republic or the, the Rebellion even and, like, what they do. Mm-hmm. You, like, oh, I guess maybe they're just taking them to prison cells and throwing them in there. It's like, no, like, they're putting these people into places where, I don't know, they're just, they're just... The the New Republic is profiting off of cheap prison labor in the same way that America does. And uh, yeah, that's 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 what we got to say here. America yeah. is bad sometimes, and so is the New Republic, and so is the, the Galactic Empire. We're all bad. Everyone is bad. Yeah, we're just taking the rose-colored glasses off here. That's that's really what the Mandalorian <laughs> is is showing us. It's it's that... That's a less polarizing way of thinking of it. We got Mayfield. He's uh, a prisoner, and then he's remanded into custody of Cara Dune, who, you know, was asked a favor by her old pal Mando. 
and uh, she takes him to Slave One, where he then joins the Mandalorian, Din Jarek, as, as well as Fett and his partner, Fennec Shand. So Slave One is Boba Fett's ship, which showed up last yep. episode, um, which we are very enamored with. Um, and I I really got to say, this was like, A, my favorite episode for, for many reasons, but it was one of the reasons was that we just got to be inside the Slave One and that takeoff yeah. mechanic is so cool. Like the, it's a, cause the, the way the Slave One for anybody who's not familiar with it, who may be listening to this, AKA my mom, the mechanic of, of the Slave One is that it lies, it's like lying on its back when it's landed and you enter and exit the ship through this thing. And as it takes off, it lifts up and then rotates 90 degrees and then flies horizontally in that respect. So, you actually get to be in it while it's taking off, which I think is such a great detail and something that, again, could have just been overlooked, but someone was just like, nah, wait, we're shooting from the interior of Slave 1 as we're leaving. We got to show <laughs> this whole thing moving and like the, the movement of the light and the movement of the cockpit. It's just, it's, it's good. It was a great detail and I enjoyed it. You wouldn't think about that as a kid because even if you're lucky enough to have the Slave 1 toy... Like, it doesn't articulate that way. <laughs> well, it, it does have, it had weighted fins, I guess, fin wings on the side of it, so that it, once you did take it off, like, you could lay it on its back and the, the wings would there, and as soon as you tilted it upright, the weight shifted so that the, the wings lifted in a certain way. So it, it, it was evident that something was happening in that sense. He also got a new paint job. Is this where we, we see the paint job for the first time? I didn't really pick up on that. I am colorblind. <laughs> well, no, I thought we talked about this. Like You think he, his helmet? You mean... Yeah, uh, sorry, not on the ship. So on, yeah, on Boba okay. Fett's uh, armor. Uh, he, he just kind of gets a touch-up. <laughs> Obviously, that armor's been banged up. Well, he has like a matte finish going, which I did not enjoy. Um, I loved it. I like a more reflective armor, and for some reason in my head, the armor was more reflective in the pre, in like the original trilogy and whatnot, and it just looks cheaper to me, I guess, the, the armor being sort of matte finished like that. I, I like it. it you know, I, I imagine it's going to get banged up again over time, and sure. we'll get that, you know, that natural scarring, but there was like a lot of scarring, and I, I'm sure part of him was like, yeah, some the scarring is cool, but a lot of the scarring wasn't mine, because I have not been wearing it. Yeah, we're talking about... <laughs> so we need to start yeah, over. Mechanical scarring, like not his skin scarring, which is... Very Which is, yeah, yeah, that's a different thing. Um, okay, so he, the reason we're getting him is because, uh, Bill Burr's character is because he knows how to, he, I don't, I don't even know how they shoehorned him So in. he, his expertise, and like, this is what's benefited him as a... He's like a slicer, I guess? Or yeah, he's like kind of like a slicer. I mean, he, he was Imperial, right? So he, he knows about Imperial protocols and knows like where and how to, to fetch certain information. And what they needed him for was to fetch the coordinates from off Gideon's ship, because that's where Grogu is being kept, obviously. Right. So they needed Bill Burr in order to, to track down Grogu. In my opinion, I, like it's it's that they could have written something much simpler to find this ship, but like they just like well, we have a whole episode we have to fill up right now, like so let's go on an adventure yeah. with it. You know, like they could easily just be like, sure. oh, we've picked up signals from Moff Gideon's ship and like this nav buoy in this sector of the galaxy or whatever. Like, yeah, you know, there's probably so many simpler ways they could have gone about this, but I'm grateful that they did this because it just it's. It's a fun ride. It's cool that they used an entire episode to, to sort of fill that hole and also redeem uh, Mayfeld in, in a way and, and flesh out his character a little more. For sure, yeah. Um, this episode was written by uh, Rick Famuyiwa, uh, and yeah. uh, he wrote and directed this. So it, it's, 
I, I have to say, like, I just, I love the dialogue in this episode. I loved the direction in the episode. Like, I think everything about this was, it, it's just, it it's that thing where, like, you see, like, Taika Watiti's episode of The Mandalorian, and you're just, like, you feel something different about it. Like, it, it understands humor in a certain way. It understands pacing. It understands direction. Like, the shots are just a little bit framed, like, framed a little bit differently. And, like, then you watch, like, a, like Bryce Dallas Howard's episode, and you're like, oh, this plays a little bit differently, and it feels weirder. Like, it, it, it just different, I guess. And it has its strengths and it has its weaknesses, just like any other. But like this one specifically, I was like, wow, he really, really nailed it. Like, because like this episode had like probably the most clever plotting and pacing and like the most inferential, like you had to infer a lot of movements and a lot of weird steps that were happening. It was just, it was just so meticulously plotted, I felt like. And there was a lot of tension so effective. I, I just think uh, Fama Yuo is like, he just did such a great job. I, I just, and it yeah. makes me really want more. And like, you can see more of his, his work. Um, he did like a, Dope was a great movie uh, from a few years back, 2015. Oh yeah, he did do that. Yeah, like yeah. he's just, he's had such great, stuff he, he's got a lot of he's got a lot of range because he also did uh he did some work on that hassan minaj netflix special as well homecoming king oh i'm not yeah. exactly sure what he did on that but I, I know that he was involved in the the production of that as he's well he's the executive producer um so i mean it's hard to say okay, cool. what, it, what an executive producer does besides finance and kind of give <laughs> tips along the way yeah. but um yeah you know I mean, oh he did two episodes in the first season of the mandalorian he did the child mm-hmm. uh so that i mean that was incredible that's the one with you know taika's droid uh for the first time and then also he did the prisoner so the prisoner was the one where they go and rescue or like they, that's the one where you first meet mayfield right Mm-hmm. So I th- I remember thinking so it's interesting that he directed and wrote that one because I remember thinking on that one that directorially like it was really like effective like you know remember the ending where you know the Mandalorian sneaks up behind Mayfield and he's like screaming or something like that like the horror elements of that episode were really f- like front and foremost like they they worked a lot but for mm-hmm. some reason I didn't like the writing that episode I don't know so I, I mean it goes to show you that I don't know anything about what I'm talking about I guess but in <laughs> in general I do like. I just, I can't gush enough about this episode and how well it was written, I think. So uh, they, they get him and he tells them, okay, like the, the nearest hub basically to to get this information is on Morak, uh, where there is a secret Imperial mining hub with a terminal that can access the intel. So they sort of formulate a plan to get in using armored vehicles. So specific. It's like, you know, like uh, when you're, when you get like ransomware hacks or something like that, like the ransomware people like this is something that happens in new york i I don't know how frequently but it has happened i've heard like podcasts about it but like if you get a ransomware hack like and you're based in new york someone be like you have to go to this a specific atm in greenpoint in brooklyn and do a bitcoin transaction at this specific atm and like that's what i feel like this is this is just like the weird kind of ransomware thing like you have to go to this specific mining hub and look at this terminal in the back of this room like what a specific thing. It just seems like a terminal, like you could probably find that anywhere. Uh, but this one specifically is the one they have to go for, which is really a really right. weird. Like why would the, why would access be limited by location? Usually it's limited by user. Yeah. But I mean, that, <laughs> I mean, there's a million ways you could take that. I mean, maybe it's, this is like a sandboxed terminal and it gets data in, but doesn't send any data out or something in that way. Or like it doesn't, it's very selective. Like there's a, a million ways you could justify it. I think it's fascinating that they chose that they went this way. I don't think it's like, it doesn't, it doesn't strike me as like a cop out or like a stupid like a it's a MacGuffin for sure but it's not like a MacGuffin 
in the sense of like, it doesn't seem as arbitrary as like you would you would think. For me, this sits somewhere between the level of access that say R2-D2 has to certain information by just jacking into right. an terminal, <laughs> right? And then also um, the Death Star plans, which only exist on Scarif. Right. This is somewhere between that. And it, <laughs> so it's, it's yeah, it's like, uh, do we... Do we really have to explain this fully? Is it really worth investigating? Let's just take it for what it is. Okay, fine. <laughs> right, yeah. I mean, there's no you have no other choice but to take it for what it is. But it is kind of... It, I do like that new scale that we have in terms of MacGuffin scale. It's like, like if you were just on this thing and you just jack into a terminal versus like, this is the only copy of this and it is... On the speech planet. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so they go to this planet... Morak. They go to the planet and they see they, there are like all these armored vehicles that are transporting this extremely volatile fuel called Rhydonium. Have we encountered Rhydonium before? This is not what we saw in Solo, is it? What's the explosive material in uh, Solo? That oh, they're... like the hi- was the stuff in so- in Solo was that hyperspace fuel? It was, but it had a name. Like it was coaxium, the coaxium heist. Right. Yeah. So there's coaxium and there's Rhydonium, and both seem to be some sort of of fuel, which is probably used almost interchangeably in certain cases. So they go to Morak, which is a very Star Trek name to me. I, it's like, it just really strikes me as like a Klingon thing or something. <laughs> Do they formulate the plan on the fly or is this something they, they kind of show up with? Yeah, so, okay. It, it seemed to me that they, they get to the planet and they see these like these transports and uh, they're like, okay, well, that, that must be our way in because you know our, our guy Mayfeld, he knows exactly like, how all the security at a facility like this would work. They, if they were, if certain people were to go in and they were to get scanned, they would show up on their registry because apparently you can scan inside of a armored vehicle for a human and obtain their DNA <laughs> or something in know. order to run across a database and you'd be flagged. I don't know why I wasn't mad at anything. Any of the arbitrary rules in this or like the, the weird stuff, like I wasn't mad at it. I don't know why. Yeah, this is usually the stuff that would hang you up. This is, yeah, usually stuff I'm like, this is stupid. But like, I was like, okay, <laughs> yeah. Like, I have no idea what an Imperial secret mining hub would be able to do. It seems very specific, but you know what? In the name of security, I'm happy that like, they don't have these crazy <laughs> holes in their security, like the Death Star thing, like, you know, which ended up being intentional. So, so basically it got narrowed down to like, okay, Mayfeld could go. He wasn't going to get flagged, but then they started going down the list of everybody else that was on the ship and it wasn't going to work. Obviously Boba Fett couldn't go because they would recognize his face. Because <laughs> uh, he's a clone. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Okay. Yeah. He's, he's pretty well known. Cara Dune couldn't go because she was, you know, she's Republic, Republic, right? Republic, okay, I guess. Fennec Shan, why not her? Oh, well, she's not entirely human. Oh, okay, right, okay, that makes sense. Which left uh, just just Mando. And the problem with Mando is that he can't take off his mask, except, oh, wait, I guess maybe now he can. Well, I mean, <laughs> his he justifies it. He bends the rules in the sense that he's going to be yeah. wearing a mask. Right. Okay, so, I mean... He goes and changes in the corner. It, it felt very like um, like that episode of Seinfeld when Jerry pees in the parking garage. Like, he just <laughs> goes off to the corner of this tunnel, um, changes his clothes, and then and then gets in the transport. You know how there's, like, in movies, there's, this, like, you know, no characters ever have to go to the bathroom unless it's, like, a plot point or, like, unless it's a funny thing, right. a joke. There is, a wor- like, a part of Star Wars where there is a man fully nude just, like changing out of really heavy armor and getting into stormtrooper armor, just having to get naked and like really quickly put a helmet. Like I would love to see the scene of Pedro Pascal, like having to get changed and like drop his drawers and like yes. jump into another thing just because it's so funny to me to think about like, this does open up so many questions. Like does he like, you know, who do you put your pants on first in the morning? 
like does he leave his helmet on the entire time he's changing is that the last thing he changes is it the first thing he changes he looks back and forth left and right he's like okay now no nobody's watching like he's behind a bush or like behind some like piece of metal or something hiding from them they're just listening to him get changed all this metal clanking around and him clank, shoving it clank. into that duffel bag like <laughs> like there's just so much that like like typically i do think about these things when i watch movies like when does anybody go to the bathroom like they have to pee at some point you know like like and this is just one of those things where it's like a similarly undignified act that I just wish that I understood more about or like wish that like there's obviously no time for this in the movie or the TV show, but it's just really funny to me to think about. I don't know. It's just it's, Yeah, it's the little tough. things that, you know, explore the space. Explore the space. Let's see the, the comedy routine that is the Mandalorian trying to get changed. <laughs> I just love the idea of him like getting interrupted and he's like in his silk boxers and his helmet and that's it. And he has to run. Yeah, he has baby Yoda um, boxers printed. <laughs> um, okay. So anyway, he changes. Uh, they both put on, you know, this like Imperial armored gear, um, this transport gear, and they get in this this uh, this big armored thing. I have, I have a lot of questions about like why this armored uh, vehicle is necessary. Like, where is it coming from? And, you know, it's obviously being transported to this mining facility. And this, I guess the facility itself is like a, a refinery, probably. Sure. Not actually where the mining is happening, because then why would it be being brought there? So it's being mined somewhere, let's say somewhere else on the planet, probably. It's pretty unstable as they're transporting it. That's like a big thing, a big weird caveat right. to this whole thing is that if you drive too fast or too rough, yeah. the, uh, the whatever it's called is going to rupture. Or like, you know, sure. it's going to hit flashpoint and it's going to explode everything. And that's sort of what happens. Um, like there's other transports not in frame with the Mandalorian and Mayfield, but there are like in the distance, like you hear kind of other, other, the other transports being attacked kind of off the path or like further up the road and they're just exploding and being attacked. And we don't really know why or what's happening. It's sort of a mystery. I think my head went to like beast and I thought we were going to do like another monster, like man versus nature kind of thing. Oh, sure. But then I was like, well, they've been doing this for a while. So you'd think that like any nature they would have figured out at this point of starting this hub up, yeah. you know, they would, this isn't like, you know, the town that's being haunted by the crate dragon or whatever. This is a, so it ends up being um, man versus man or man versus alien, I guess, if you want to put it that way. Um, yeah. Man versus it, humanoid. Like some sort of indigenous tribe. Uh, at first you kind of think maybe they're pirates, but I think it's just, I think we're supposed to get the feeling that, you know, this is their, this is their planet. Like, obviously they're just blowing this up. They're not trying to steal anything. They are trying to blow up these transports in order to get the empire, you know, probably to leave and to leave them alone. That was the idea that I got. That's the biggest thing is that like, you know, I think your instinct is to be like, oh, they're terrorists or whatever. But like, they're probably just like, maybe they're freedom fighters. Maybe they're rebels. Then like, maybe the Mandalorian would be on their side or like be in favor of them. I know the Mandalorian doesn't take sides in conflicts or whatever, but, um, Right. You know, maybe these are, these are rebellion, you know, that just didn't get the message or like whatever that the, that the new Republic has been formed or something. And they're just, you know, trying to mess up the Imperials. And here you are, like, they're preventing this all from happening, like from the rebellion, from taking hold on this planet. Who knows? Yeah. But my, my question, like whether it would have been a beast or whether it's pirates or indigenous people, whatever, whatever it is that's attacking and blowing up these transports. My question is why if this was an unknown thing that was happening as it seemed to be from the the reactions that we were getting we were getting from the imperials back at the refinery waiting for this uh rhydonium to arrive why wouldn't they just fly it like is there any reason why they couldn't put it on some sort of like atmospheric transport that could fly above all of these i mean i think the movement probably would be too much right i, I can't imagine the movement on the ground maybe they're super stabilized 
transports, who knows on for ground transport, but like I imagine the takeoff or something, there's probably some height thing, some like barometric pressure thing. There's, there's so okay. many arbitrary rules that could be constructed for this. It's sure. It doesn't, okay. yeah. I didn't consider that. I didn't consider that like, you know, the, the pressure at, at higher altitudes could potentially rupture it. But. Uh, there's like hover transports and everything too, which is such a weird thing to be like, if you, if stability is the key, why would like, <laughs> why are we using wheels? Clearly speeders exist, <laughs> you know, maybe it's maybe the power for, I mean, there's, there's been like huge capital ships can hover in atmosphere. So like, clearly it's not a size issue. It's not like you can't make a speeder that's like huge transport size. I don't know. You're not wrong. I guess for me, I was thinking like in, in real life terms, I was thinking the better transport for something like this would be a helicopter. Let's think about solo again, right? The, the coaxium heist when they were planning to steal it, they were just going to steal it with like their transport. They were just going to pull off this, this train car and fly it and you know at low level potentially probably land it so they could take all the stuff out of it and put it into the cargo hold but presumably it'd be the same scenario here like presumably they could get some sort of you know smaller craft that would fly at a low altitude right. but not so low that people could just jump onto it from their speeders <laughs> and blow it up with thermal detonators i like whatever i just don't see that like how like wheels like you see wheels so infrequently right. in star wars it's <laughs> such a rare thing to see a wheel in star wars so like why why build why be like yes let's look at the stability of a wheel and like struts and hydraulics and whatever and like did this have wheels like i i didn't actually write this down as a note do you specifically remember these people got like sucked into the treads i think at some point or maybe i'm just yes, thinking of yes, Indiana Jones. Right. i don't know they did okay anyway uh we skipped over something that i think we should probably comment on which is mayfield talking to mando um this is pre-attack yeah so th you know they're alone in this transport um obviously they have a rough history bill burr has to pop his helmet off and part of i think part of why i like the script so much is because mayfield becomes such a likable agitator like he's like i'm gonna pop his helmet off because i can like basically he's 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 saying it's because it's stuffy or whatever and there may be an element of truth to that <laughs> But it's to piss off the Mandalorian and like to kind of poke him and to say and like like I think part of it is also that like Bill Burr was like pretending I mean he was being like a Bostonian in space last time and like he was being Bill Burr in space but this time like he actually applies like Bill Burr like the writer actually applies Bill Burr logic to it maybe that's the difference between Mayfield in the Prisoner episode versus Mayfield in this is that like the writer director was like knew who Bill Burr was. Maybe he didn't know that Bill Burr was going to be playing Mayfield in the first one. So he just kind of wrote him to be generic space pirate guy, space hard ass. And this time he's like, well, if Bill Burr is going to play this character, I know who Bill Burr is and I know what his comedy is like. And I know that he likes to push people's buttons and kind of like lean on stuff that seems sort of flimsy. And so he wrote Mayfield in this episode to be that agitator that kind of like being like, isn't this kind of hypocritical what you're doing? Like, like, isn't it, aren't your rules dumb that you have to wear this helmet all the time? Um, because the Mandalorian sitting in shotgun in this, in this transport, just not taking his helmet off when he really would be a nicer time for him to do so. Mm -hmm. I think the only part of this that bothers me is something we'll get to later and we can talk about that afterwards. But it, it, this conversation, is there anything about this one that struck you in general or? 
Uh, well, just in response to what you said, with like actually like taking off the helmet, it did take on a very different meaning in 2020 than I think was intended when they wrote it. And probably really? even shot it. <laughs> you know, it just has like a very like a virus masking thing. Yeah, it just felt like when I watched it, it felt very anti-masker, right? Huh. Because it's the same sort of argument that I hear from a lot of people. I just can't wear it because I can't breathe. It's like okay, well, yes, you can. It's just not comfortable for you, and you'd rather not. And obviously, like there isn't the threat of a of a, a virus in the shuttle that you know could potentially kill other people involved but you know the that idea of like one person who is adamant about wearing a mask and the other person who is not adamant about wearing a mask is it just has an entirely different meaning that's in true the year 2020 than they probably intended but i'm not faulting anybody for it and i'm not saying that it's like good or bad it's just something that i i recognized as a uh reflection of the real world i feel like aaron might have said like turned to me when we were watching this and been like Bilber's an anti-masker or something like that. She might have said something <laughs> to that effect, I feel like. Um, yeah, it's funny. Yeah. Um, but no, so the, the actual conversation that's being had is that Mayfeld talks about how Mando doesn't even seem sure of what the rules are for his creed and that everyone's doing the best they can. And we've talked about this on this show in the past. Like, that seems to be, like, one of the main points for the Mandalorian this season is like coming to terms with what being a Mandalorian means because he's meeting all of these different kinds of Mandalorians. You know, we've got Bo-Katan, we have Boba Fett. Um, what does it mean to be a Mandalorian and what does the creed mean and how strictly are you going to follow it in order to, to carry out your, your directives? So the question that he asks is, is, is kind of significant and it really kind of brings to the forefront something that I'm sure the Mandalorian is already thinking about. And it's probably really annoying for him <laughs> to have Mayfeld talking about this thing that he's, he's been internally trying to figure out and that explains his silence. He's just, he's just not even giving in, but you know, this circles back to that conversation we had and you know, the child stays with you and his waffling on what that means. You know, he's, he's bending the rules more and more over time and he's making the creed fit what he wants. I think. That's the idea that I got from this conversation and from the you know the bigger conversation that we've been having about Din and his responsibility to the child and also his responsibility to the creed and the code. Where is the child right now? Oh, he's he's on Moff Gideon's ship. I was in my head. I'm like trying to place yeah. him, being like, where where have we put him for babysitting this time? And it turns out he's with the enemy this time. That's yeah. where he's being babysat. Um, yeah, I feel like anybody who hasn't seen the episode and is just listening to this as a recap or whatever that for probably is good for them to know. So yeah, I, I like the scene. It was it was very it's very intimate. Like it's a lot more intimate than we usually get with him. Like we had elements in season one with you know that woman on on that sort of primitive planet where the ATAT or the ATST Walker was was the main threat. Yeah, like, I can't remember what her name was, but you know who I'm talking about. Like there there seemed to be maybe like a, a hint of intimacy there, like talking about the mask, but he he was you know, very tight lipped on, on it then. And he's tight lipped on it now. But. He was more sure of himself back then. That was supposed yeah. to be like the beginning of people trying to chip away at him, I think. But, um, this is very much like a, you feel like when Bill Burr is gr like grilling somebody, they're going to get defensive or whatever, but he kind of just stays tight lipped and doesn't really say anything. Like he's not even like being like, this is the way or like, you know, I don't really think he has any yeah. comebacks even um, to anything Bill Burr says. You know, it's just a... I also think, like, this is Bill Burr... Like, I don't think, like, Bill Burr is entirely just trying to get on the Mandalorian's nerves, right? I think, right. like, he's trying to show some level of empathy and understanding. Like, I think he's he's egging him on. You're right. He's just trying to, like, highlight a hypocrisy or, like, something he finds interesting and let the person who he's criticizing 
think of it that way. You know, like I don't think it's the same as like like a Joe Rogan type who's like, I'm just a guy asking questions here. Like, no, this this is Mayfeld's way of connecting. It's just him one on one. There's no audience and there's no no nothing to gain or lose. And like, he probably knows the Mandalorian could off him right then and there if he wanted to. Like, there are stakes in this. It's it's like he's just trying to pass the time in this car with this guy and have a conversation with him. Yeah. I, I truly believe that this is his way of, of trying to maybe repair the damage. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> in the relationship prior. And like, this is his way of saying like, Hey, look, like I don't fully understand what your deal is, but I get the feeling that maybe you don't as well. And like, I'm offering up the opportunity for you to talk about it <laughs> in his own way. Isn't there a bit where when we meet Mayfield again, he like sees Boba Fett. He's like, Oh, I thought you're someone else. And then like, Din just shows yeah, up and, and his he's like, face so just he's like, oh god, <laughs> like that was a good. That was it's a good so that funny. Earlier. The way his face falls is so good. Like, yeah, it, it is. It's very good acting. You very, you very clearly get the sense that like he's been thinking about the way things were left off <laughs> with the Mandalorian for a while now, <laughs> and he knows that he wasn't without blame. Yeah. in how that went down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's great. <laughs> so yeah, he, he's not an idiot. Like Mayfeld is, is. He's a smart guy. He's he's obviously like very considerate about things and he thinks about things a lot deeper very much like bill burr so right yeah. but it is bill burr in space and i, I think we're uh, we're set on that more so than it was last time we complained about it being bill burr in space last time but i think it because it was literally like the facade of bill burr and sort of the personality this is actually like the, yeah. the you feel like it's the guy talking in space yeah so uh, then we get to the pirates heist um the big thing, like we, we talked, we kind of expended everything that was, was to be talked about there. Some cool action, some cool fights. Some rooftop fights, very typical train heist sort of Indiana action. Jones. Like, you know, we've, we've, we've seen elements of this before. Um, I think the big thing is that Mandalorian is not in his armor anymore, so he can't take hits like he normally would, and he's not used to that. Um, and I, I do think that, like, I did enjoy seeing him on the ropes this time, like, yeah, I think it's because you know it's not going to end. You know, I think that's what makes it really thrilling to watch. Is that like he's it's it's that the Deus Ex Machina. You know, it's just uh, you know, like what is going to save him now? Like, is the Slave One going to just kind of do a pass and take him out or whatever? Like, they can't really expose themselves in that way. We're not ready for that yet. Um, so, what could possibly save them at right this point? Like, I was thinking maybe Fennec is going to snipe these people from afar, which comes in later, but not at this point because there's just so much movement happening. It's it's just him against all of these these pirates. Like you know, Mayfeld can't even help because he has to drive steady, and he can't drive. They can't drive faster because like the, their goal is to get to the place where they're going to be safe. It's very much like a mission in a video game where you're trying to. It's a pursue mission where you're like being tailed by somebody and the level is going to end at a certain point. You just have to survive and they can't drive faster because it will set off the Rhydonium and make them explode. And they can't drive slower because then the pirates will catch them and blow them up. And really all you can do is just put the Mandalorian on the top of the roof and just hope he fights everybody off. And he does for the most part, it's some pretty good, some pretty good choreography, some pretty good deaths in there, some pretty good explosions and near misses. And I think they're a little gratuitous at the time when that thermal detonator, as far as, you know, time it takes him to get there and disarm it or get rid of it. But Hey, you know, whatever it, mm-hmm. it builds tension. <laughs> um, and then he's sort of resigned. He's like, there's no way I can possibly survive this. And apparently they get close enough to the Imperial Depot where some ties can be scrambled or, or maybe the ties are just were taking a while to get scrambled and they get there and they take out the remaining pirates and they safely yeah, go over the It only the took bridge. several transports to, to blow up before they could shuttle the, the fighters. <laughs> you would think that like, you know, they'd be able to get some, some pilots in those ties faster. You know, they're, they're fast ships and they're not too, too far away. Or you think that they would be like, you know, 
they would be going along with every transport every single time. Like, th- yeah, they would like, have some sort of escort. <laughs> yeah, or maybe this is the first time these things have been assaulted, you know? Maybe this is the bad luck of, of the, the Mandalorian. It didn't seem that way. Like, that was my, my argument, my, like, qualm with that whole transport part of this plot was that we cut back to a couple of Imperials who were, you know, in command at the refinery, and it seems like this has been something they've been dealing with for a while. Oh, okay. That's true. Yeah, they're like, you made it through the pirates, huh? Like, um, we'll, we'll yeah. get to that. It I felt guess. very um, Avatar to me, like the the, the plot of Avatar. I never saw Avatar. I will. I what? Will. I know, I know. You love Avatar. It's it's pretty insane that I missed it when it came out. It's like the highest grossing movie ever almost. Like, it's just... It I, is. Yeah. It technically is. Yeah. I will argue that to the death. I, I, I won't disagree with you. I don't think anybody could. But uh, yeah, I just never seen it. And it's really just because I it, I just know it's such a commitment to watch, to really just like dump into these this world of these blue people. And Aaron has no desire to watch it again. So it's like, am I really just going to sit there for three hours watching James Cameron's work? Yes. You know? I, I, yeah, I guess yes, the answer are. has to be yes, huh? Um, anyway, <laughs> okay, let's get back to this. Um, the Mandalorian and Bill Burr show up at this thing. They're greeted. And this is kind of the only beef I had with this script in this episode, which was that, it seems such a huge oversight to not put the helmet back on for Bill Burr. Like, like I don't understand why he why he's not just like, oh, better put the helmet back on before I get out of this transport and walk into this crowd of cheering Imperials. Who well, are, it doesn't seem that he he has any sort of like uh, fear that he's going to be recognized. Like, it doesn't seem like he's you know wanted. But by... he was an Imperial pilot. He 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 was worried. I mean, it, it turns out the conflict is that he thinks he's going to be recognized. Like, that's my issue. Is that like. It's not just that, like, he feels confident walking through this crowd of Imperials. Like, eventually, we get to a point where he cannot walk into a room because he's like, that guy will know who I am. Yeah. And that also... But, again, we I think I have to comment on that, too, when we get to it, because that I have some thoughts on that scene as well. But, um, yeah, I think it's really weird that he just doesn't put the mask back on. Like, he was wearing yeah. it at the beginning of the car ride. He knows he like it's probably better to go incognito, and it's weird for to have two partners, one with a helmet on. Like it's to more, it's, it makes the Mandalorian stick out like a sore thumb if he's the only one not wearing a helmet or the only one wearing a helmet, and Bill Burr's just sitting there without his helmet on. It's like it's a weird thing, especially in, in, with the Imperials who are all about like anonymity or not anonymity, but like lack of identity. I guess is the better way to phrase that. Like in terms of like having like a faceless person telling you what to do or being your grunt yeah so i don't know that's that's it was a weird overlook and partially i think it's a practical thing where they're like well we need to be able to tell the mandalorian and bill burr apart in this scene (laughs) i think and i truly think i mean obviously the mandalorian can't take off his mask um i think maybe it was a logistics thing if anything um just to have like a to give bill burr more face time and b to just have it not be confusing as to who's talking because I think Harrison Ford and Luke Skywalker in, in episode four, their height difference is what really gives them away, right? Yeah. I mean, it's not super significant, but it's enough. Yeah. It's enough. And it's enough to know which one, but like even, the, even then it's like, if you don't know there's a height difference in them um, or whatever. Then... And I mean, they only have their, their, you know, f- their masks on during that sequence for a very short amount of time, basically when they're in yeah. el- the elevator with. Right. And they pop children, that off right? as soon as they can. Yeah. It's, it's very short and it doesn't matter who's who. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it seemed like a weird move in the wor- in the context of the scene but not in the context of making a television show yeah but you know mando doesn't keep his his mask on for long um he after mayfeld's like no i can't do this well we haven't yeah i mean 
we're, we're basically there. We're so there. they arrive. They're they're greeted warmly by the all the Imperials. Like, yay! Like you made it here. Like it's it's awesome that you made it through this gambit that we apparently put everybody through for some reason. They seem like such a motley crew of Imperials too. Like they seem. Yeah. So, like these are like the Nazis of the Nazis that are still holding on, being dudes at this depot and like cheering their bros on. Like it's they just strike me as such <laughs> that are just like. Well, also it's it's funny you say that because I mean I have I, during this episode I'm thinking a lot about the vestiges of the Empire that remain and mm-hmm. like how that plays into the interactions that they have with each other and and you know the the hierarchy that they used to have. But then also, like you said, like it is a Motley crew. Everybody's very jovial. This seems like a, a big old, you know, band of, of homies, but is it really that much different than when the rebellion right. want to fight and there was celebration back at, at base? Yeah. Like, it, it feels very similar to me. And I think that's like another one of those th- ideas that we're supposed to get across. Like, there are similarities. Like these are just people. Right. These are just people like they're the underdogs now in a way. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. But, um, I didn't have a good feeling of them. Like they all on the scene had great feelings and were really proud of their friends for making it through the gauntlet. But like, I was kind of like, it's a very different view of the empire. Yeah. Like we have not seen something like that before. And I think that this, that sort of celebration is only possible because well, it's weirdly emotive of the state of the empire. Now. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's weirdly emotive to me. Like, you know, the, you never see stormtroopers cheering in star Wars elsewhere, yeah. I guess, because we never see stormtroopers having victories. We all only see them getting murdered. Um, uh, but there's never any like go team before they go get, you know, like <laughs> before they go attack on Endor or something like that. Or like yeah. after they corner the rebels at the shield generator thing, they're never like, we did it. Yeah. Woo. Right. Like there's never anything going on. It's, it's, it's weird to have an emotive bunch of, yeah. There, there should be more from that side. Like I'm, I'm trying to think of other examples of what do you, you mean? Know, seeing things from the Imperial point of view, you know, just like getting, getting a story from the point of view of an imperial and a lot of it has been in young adult and kid age fiction you mean the, the novels i'm thinking specifically of lost stars lost stars yeah. mm-hmm. um that jason fry series like the you know the cadets like the imperial cadets mm-hmm. series that he did those were really cool but there's not a whole lot of that so this is i think this is really like the first on screen well, the imperials are cold the first order is cold and this yeah. is a very warm welcome and I don't feel like that is a thing that like you would typically see. And it, so, yeah, I mean, it, it does show a massive shift in the empire. But now, so we, we have a, bill, a maskless Bill Burr and a masked Din Djarin, a.k.a. the Mandalorian, who is just mm-hmm. chilling out. Um, and they're trying to figure out where they need to go. And it's, I think this is the part that sells the script the most for me <laughs> is because there is something that happens unspoken here. And... They never resolve it. They never say which is the right way. I was expecting a wink, wink at the end of it. I was expecting some. I was expecting the other shoe to fall. But essentially, we have Bill Burr walk into a room, and be like, "I can't go in that room. That officer in there is going to recognize me because of this thing I did once, or because I used to serve under him. So I can't go in there with my helmet off to use that computer because the helmet has to be off to interface with the computer for some weird reason." You know, basically what it comes down to is like, we have to abort the mission because I can't go in that room and you can't take your helmet off. And, or, and you know, the Mandalorian presses on Bill Burr's like, no, you have to go in there. You have to go in there. And he's mm-hmm. like, I literally can't. The second I walk in there, I will be recognized and everything will be messed up and we'll be compromised and we'll have to fight our way out of here or whatever. And right. we have to abort the mission. Like it's, it's either like Mandalorian takes his helmet off and does this or we, we leave right now and everything is, is over. And like, 
Mandalorian obviously can't start stuff with Bill Burr and like put a gun to him and say, go do this right now, which I find weird. You know, like you think the Mandalorian from the first few episodes of the series would be like, just fully be like, I will literally murder you the second we leave this depot <laughs> if you don't go in there and just do that right now. He actually believes right. Bill Burr, which is the part that I find weird about this scene is that I'll, I'll just say it right now. I think Bill Burr is again doing this to make a point. Or like to push the Mandalorian to do something. Oh, you think he's bluffing? I like, think he's bluffing. You think that there, there's truth to the story, but not that not so much that. Like, right. I think it's a for sure thing that the officer is going to recognize. And it. maybe maybe the answer is that I'm totally wrong about this because they don't actually say it's true in the end. But I feel like there's this weird unspoken thing that happens here and at the end of it, uh, especially. And I was expecting it when okay, the Mandalorian goes up to the terminal and he <laughs> weirdly gets the information. And I, right. I like, like, what is the face scanning? That's for? exactly what I was trying to remember <laughs> what, what I was thinking about, because I had this thought, I was like, he, he gets the information about where it is and then it scans his face. And it's like, like, you need to finish this scan or else after you've got this information or else we're going to mess you up. It's like, how, imagine having to type your password in after you have all the information. It's like, oh, I didn't get the order. Like it was that. I think he like put in his stick and then he had to, you know, authorize in order to fetch the information before it would be transferred to the stick. The second that the, his face scan completes is when like it's counting down and he gets the face scan done at the, the last sec possible second. Then he pulls the stick out. So like, I guess, I mean, maybe it's that type yeah. of thing. But in general, it seemed like a very weird way to authenticate data. But, but also like what, what kind of authentication is being done here? Like <laughs> what database... Is it checking against to say, oh, yes. If it's a closed system, especially like, yeah, it's like, it's just a, yeah. it's a local area network or whatever. And like, it's a, uh, it's got an active directory. Oh God, I'm getting IT flashbacks right now. God. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, I see. The empire is using Azure now. Yeah. Yeah. It's exactly what's happening. Um, <laughs> it's cut. So he pulls away from this thing and what happens? He gets a call from the, the officer that Mayfield, Bill Burr is scared of or something like that. And is, is said like, you have to come over here. Oh, that's what's pulling him away. He's being told to go over to the executive officer or whatever when he's trying to right. finish his face scan. And mm -hmm. the guy's like, you need to come over here right now and talk to me, which is really weird to do. Um, and it's very tense and they're looking at each other face to face. We get like Pedro Pascal full on without the mask right now. You know, it's weirdly jarring. Like, I feel like I'm looking at something I shouldn't be looking at when he takes his mask off, similar mm -hmm. to how he felt in the season finale of the last season. Like, it's just like a, it's a weird thing you're looking at. He looks really I, I think it's an interesting way to do it, right? Like, yeah. this is the first that we're seeing his face. And I think yeah. the lead up to this is supposed to have been, like, I, I think we were supposed to think this was going to be this big sort of emotional moment, potentially with the kid. And they offset that now by adding this layer of, of tension because now he's like potentially been found out as an infiltrator. So I, I kind of like that because it, it, it takes what we maybe would have expected to feel and then flips it on its head. Right. Like, and I, I think it's kind of a safe choice as well, because I think that's kind of a hard thing to, I think in conveying the kind of emotion that we would expect to see for our hero after, you know, almost two full seasons of a television show where you don't see his face. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's a hard thing to pull off. So maybe this was a safe decision, but I kind of like how it worked. Yeah, it yeah. took the heat off of the actual reveal insofar as like, this is what he actually looks like. Because in, in the grand scheme of things, who really cares? Like what, <laughs> yeah. what does it matter what he looks like? It doesn't matter 
what he looks like at all. Right. It, it, it plays no part. The, the point of it is that he removed his helmet, which is a hard thing for him to do because of his creed. And we under, we get the understanding of like what, why he did it. We know that he's doing this because he cares for the kid, but that's really all that we need to get out of it. So for them to, to then sort of wash over the rest of the stuff that I think people would probably have got hung up on otherwise, and just immediately add the tension back into the scene. Um, I think that really works for me. Well, here is the, um, the part, you know, it kind of solidifies the weird theory I have about this scene is that, you know, we have him being grilled sort of by this guy being like asked what his name is. Um, and he can't really come up with an answer. He's kind of floundering. He's like, I don't know what to say. Uh, like suddenly the Pedro Pascal or the Mandalorian is just fully speechless and a dumb idiot again. He can't think on his feet. Well, I don't. I mean, how how easily would you think if someone caught you naked and started asking you questions? I, what I'm saying like, is, this, this is the first is time a, he's been seen without his helmet. This is not the waffling thing. This is just again showing his ineptitude. As it's like showing how he may not be actually as good as at what he does. Like he's supposed to have a plan going into things. He's supposed to be a brilliant warrior. Like he can't just be a killing machine. He has to have like some street smarts or whatever. And it, and he really just doesn't have any. Like it, it's like he has no he has no social skills, which I guess is maybe prerequisite for a Mandalorian. Like maybe Mandalorians just aren't social creatures. They're all weird people. Um, like Bo-Katan even is like a weird, you know, has this weird, crazy complex about her. Um, but like in general, it's like, a, you know, he's being grilled and Bill Burr to the rescue shows up suddenly not afraid to talk to this guy anymore. And to me right. at that moment, I was like, oh my God, he is messing with the Mandalorian. Like he was just, there was no reason why he couldn't go in there without his mask on if he's just doing this right now. And maybe he was just like, you know, when push comes to shove, maybe he just rolled the dice and it's like, I'll risk it. You know, my risk threshold dropped, you know, like I'll just go do this and, you know, save the Mandalorian or whatever. Maybe there's that element. Maybe that's a basic read of it. But to me, I was reading something that really never got resolved, which is that we don't get a moment where Bill Burr's like, where the Mandalorian's like, did you really, like, were you really not going to, were you really scared about being recognized in that room? And Bill Burr doesn't go like, yeah, but I got you to take your helmet off, right? Like, you don't get that moment. Like, and uh, right. I love that. that. That seems particularly artful to me to kind of leave it up to interpretation. But I also don't know if I'm just inferring too far. If this is like a weird kind of like yeah. when people would look at the way Han was talking to Rey in uh, uh, mm -hmm. The Force Awakens, being like, no, nah, there's something behind his eyes right there. Like, I don't know if that's what right. I'm doing right now, where I'm like, I'm interpolating something or I'm inferencing something that really is impossible to inference. I, but I do feel like the character of Bill Burr would do that to the Mandalorian based on the conversation they had in the trans transport and based on the fact that he shows up and kind of doesn't give a sh like he just doesn't care uh, you know yeah. he he feels like it so it's i don't know tell me am i going crazy am i am i not selling right now or what i personally wouldn't have thought about it like that I, I didn't have that take but i i like that take i think it's interesting it definitely adds more depth to um, you know, what we were talking about before with that relationship between the two of them. I feel like anybody who's listening and you, Jake, like watch that, not the whole episode again, obviously, because you really don't have to, but like watch maybe the, because you really, I think you need to watch the transport scene again to really, to have that, to, to be able to process this mindset. Like you really need to watch that transport scene, get their dynamic and get Bill Burr's kind of tone. And then like, here's the thing is that like, I think the full Han Solo raying thing where you're, you're trying to interpret something that is impossible to be, or like you're, you're projecting onto it so much. You can't say that he's faking it when he says that he's can't go in that room. Like there's nothing, there's nothing, there's no tells in his appearance. There's no like weird cracking of a smile or like, there's nothing that I will fully admit. Like if anybody is to inference that you'd be wrong, but 
what I will say is that his showing up later on is what makes me think that he was just messing with the Mandalorian the whole time. And I huh. guess the way this scene plays out is also it because he, he throws it all away. Basically everything, any incognito infiltration thing they did is cast out the window. You talked about him, you know, coming in sort of throwing all caution in the wind in order to, to save Din, who for the life of him can't figure out what to say. He comes up with a funny excuse, which is that like, you know, old brown eyes here lost his hearing at such and such operation back in the day. And so he, he just has a hard time hearing you or something, which is, which is silly and dumb. But, you know, epi- in episodes past, we've talked about how, especially in this season, the Mandalorian is forming his party. If we look at this from like a D&D perspective, right, he's yeah. really pulling in people that fill in the holes that he lacks. Like he's very capable as a bounty hunter, but he needs help. And he's building that tribe and Mayfeld becomes part of the tribe at that point when he shows like, okay, look, obviously the Mandalorian has been caught with his pants down. He, this is not, this was not part of his plan. Um, and improvising in this sort of situation is very difficult, difficult for him. It's, he's not that social butterfly (laughs) that Mayfeld apparently is. And so for Mayfeld to come in and, and take on that role and to help him out in that situation just solidifies that idea that he's he's basically collecting friends who can fill in the gaps of his ability and that's pretty cool yeah and so this leads up to that point where valen has invites him to have a drink mayfeld brings up operation cinder which you mentioned he he gets into this further by explaining that he was present on burning con which was a mining colony targeted by operation cinder this was first mentioned in Shattered Empire, which is a really great short comic series pretty early in the Marvel run. Is that right? That was one of the first few series I think they put out. Um, it's like four issues or something. I think that's actually where we got that background on Poe Dameron's parents. Is that right? Mm-hmm. But yeah, great run. Uh, they first mentioned Operation Cinder there. It was picked up and then fleshed out a little bit more in Battlefront 2. In the, the story mode of Battlefront 2, there's a fleet mission to protect Naboo from Operation Cinder. And so basically, this was an operation done by the Empire where they're basically just destroying planets. It's like a scorched earth uh, approach at the end of the Empire. It's like one of the, the last things that they, they could do to try to regain order. Didn't really work for them, but as a result of it, a lot of innocent people died on a lot of different planets, and that's something that really shook Mayfeld, and this is that backstory that we're starting to get from him on exactly why he's an ex-Imperial and not an Imperial. Um, he, you know, he saw a lot of people die. He was one of very few, apparently, who survived on Burning Con, and it wasn't just that you know a bunch of people who were maybe native to the planet were killed, but also thousands of troops, thousands of, of Imperials were killed by um, their own team, basically, in yeah, service sacrificed. of the Emperor and, and retaining order. Now, Valen Hess, have we seen this person elsewhere? No, I believe this is, you know, this is the first time we, we've seen this particular officer. I feel like his name is so familiar. It's very Star Wars-y. Yeah. I think they have this down to a science. It wouldn't surprise me if they have some sort of, like, algorithm <laughs> at Lucasfilm headquarters that can churn these out. Yeah, I have, I've looked for them before when I started playing Squadrons, about like a name generator and just settled on one that I can talk to you later about. But, um, but yeah, um, yeah, this this actor, he's done a lot of stuff. Like, he has that face, like, that archetypal villain face, pretty much. He's just, like, Ray Donovan. Mm. A lot of TV roles, the Royals, kind of seeing what he's known for and his doom, I guess, is one of them. Kingsman, uh, Hannibal Rising. Like, yeah, he's he has the, mm. one of those faces. Like, I, I mean, he looks like he could play, like, a serial killer, like Buffalo Bill type, I guess. But yeah, I mean, he doesn't have any huge credits to it, but he had he has this slimy, slimy look and 
and uh, feel to him, which I thought was pretty excellent as far as his ability to project and sell this this evil, evil person. Like for all the camaraderie mm-hmm. and warmth we saw with them getting welcomed in, this guy is just cold. But he's offering him a drink, so he's trying to be like a tough guy. And we get Mayfield talking about all the bad stuff and, and all the things that he did. And this, this is like um, Django Unchained, this scene. No? Have you seen that? Remind me of the scene you're thinking of. It's been a very long time since I've seen that movie. You've seen the movie though, right? Yeah, a couple times. Okay, so I mean, so at the end we had the scene between, uh, what's his name, uh, Christoph Waltz. Mm. He's like mm-hmm. the nice good guy in this movie with Django, um, in, in Django Unchained. And he's talking to the antagonist, which is Leonardo DiCaprio, like a slave owner. He's saying some awful stuff and then suddenly Christoph Waltz can't resist and just shoots and just kills Leonardo DiCaprio after a long yeah. dialogue scene. So like, this is very Tarantino in a way. Maybe that's why, I mean, Tarantino has his issues and I have, you know, we, we can talk about his, that at a separate podcast, but like, I think we have. but in general, like his dialogue is excellent. And so maybe that's why I like the script so much is because I just think the dialogue is near perfect in it. And I think the pacing and the tension is just right. So like, I think maybe that's what I felt in this episode is how like, you know, Tarantino and Robert Rodriguez worked together, right? Before, and Robert Rodriguez had a previous episode of the show. Like, it, there was like there was just such a crazy Tarantino vibe in the scene, and maybe that's just what we're calling anything with tension these days. But like, <laughs> the the specific end to the scene where two people are cordially, seemingly having a conversation, and then one of them murders the other in cold blood, almost. You know, you can't really call it cold blood, I guess, because there's a lot of warm blood at that table, that's for sure. Um, but but yeah, like in general, it's just like a, a weird. Tarantino-esque scene where violence erupts after what could have been a peaceful outcome. Like that's the real thing about the, the Django Unchained scene is that like they could have just probably gotten out of that scene, but Christoph Waltz's character just just turns it to violence immediately and just kills the guy that they could have just walked away from, I guess, in the end. And that's what happens in this scene. Bill Burr just could, he, he could not resist, which I think is the line from Django. He couldn't resist. Yeah, he's like, I don't know if that's what Bill Burr says in the scene. Is that is that what he says? He's like, I couldn't resist. Uh, no, I don't, I don't remember if he, he said anything along the lines, but... Yeah. I think they kind of just look at each other in disbelief and are like, okay, it's go time. And they're like, they kill everybody else in the cantina and then they just start moving and basically it becomes like a, a escape scene then. Just straight shotting, like one shotting a hundred stormtroopers right now, them trying to get to a window to get out. It is insane um, what happens in this scene, like the two versus a hundred that manages to happen here. Yeah. So I, I, another thing about that conversation that I like is that this whole episode is about second chances for Mayfeld, right? Right. And we get the second chance that he, he has to prove himself to, to the Mandalorian, who he's wronged in the past, to, you know, to do right instead of just doing some sort of scummy heist sort of deal, but also a second chance for him to address somebody that did so wrong and like really kind of like messed up his worldview. Well, I guess you could argue that he he improved his worldview by killing so many people in, in that mission. But for him to have that second chance to address Fallon Hess and really give him a piece of his mind, that's a big moment for him. And you feel like from this moment on, he he's taking something from that. Like he definitely feels like a lot, a lot better about himself. When we get to the end of the episode, uh, before they, you know, part ways, he doesn't care what happens next, whether he goes back to prison or he's killed or he's let go. He seems like he's found some peace. And so that's a pretty important scene for that character, I think. Yeah. I mean, it's probably why Christoph Waltz did it in a, why he couldn't resist, you know, like he saw this, this manifestation of evil and it's like, if you had the chance to just destroy it, regardless of the consequence, like to be the person who put an end to this 
or like just gave this person what they deserved, would you do it? And that, I think that's what happens in Django. And I think that's also what happens here. We just have this violence erupt. Dang. <laughs> Yeah, but you're right. So this is like the escape portion. <laughs> Obviously, when you, you shoot an officer, uh, the, the homies are a little less thrilled with you. And Truly, so... the least interesting part of this episode to me was this part. You know, like we have the action yeah. scene at the beginning with the, the chase, which is pretty high tension. But like the escape, it was just like, I mean, are they really not? I think mean, maybe, maybe Mayfield's going to die. You know, maybe that was kind of where my mind was going. Like maybe they'll add some drama to it in that respect. Like drama, t- like, like Mayfield takes a hit. Mm-hmm. Bill Burr goes down. Like, but they didn't, you know, they just kind of escape. You have Fennec and Cara Dune just you know, sniping, providing fire support. Does the Slave One, like, come in and start, like, wrecking stuff too, or? Uh, I feel like it does, but yeah, you're right. Like, this this portion of the episode just sort of went by for me. I, I didn't rewatch this one. This was one of the only ones that I didn't go back and watch twice. Well, you should watch it again then and, and watch the Bill Burr oh, scene. Oh, yeah, I definitely will. Think. Yeah. I definitely will. It's just, you know, these are the last two episodes. I like to watch the episodes that I had watched previously just so I can <sighs> you get like a decent reminder. Sure, they, sure. You know, they do little catch ups for you at the beginning of every episode, but it's good to go back and, and get the context again. But yeah, this this bit kind of just washed by. They get rescued. There's some cool like sniper action. That's fun. I was like a good. I, I want to you know what I want. I just want a, a sniper movie in Star Wars. I just want enemy at the gates, but in Star Wars, that would be pretty cool. I think that's what Rogue One was close to being. Because remember, like Cassian has that scene where he snipes uh, what's his name, Generoso's dad, on the thing. But he doesn't. He doesn't. But like it could have been. He doesn't. He could have. But he could have. Anyway, I, I have had this urge to rewatch Rogue One. I mean, I mean, mark this down as a historic oh, day because like I just you know <laughs> I never have these feelings, and I just I did. know you don't. But I really just want to watch Rogue One. I think it's because of Squadrons, truthfully. But that might be it. Um, we should talk about that in an episode soon. Um, so anyway, um, we got we to gotta wrap this episode up because we have a whole we other should. one to go through. But um, Cara Dune gets all like, uh, it looks like Prisoner 1689782 got killed in the line of fire. Like, uh, just like, uh, it just looks like they're dead. And now he can, I feel like he'd probably be better off going to prison. You know, like now he's just stuck on this planet with a blown up Imperial Depot. Maybe he can find a TIE fighter and get somewhere. But like, he has to find a hyperdrive capable thing to get off this rock and they just kind of let him walk off. <laughs> like yeah. they could at least yeah, give him a ride weird. to the nearest depot or whatever, but like he just walks off into the woods. Yeah. On the planet that, you know, is now on full alert. <laughs> yeah. Like it's just, this is not a good place for him to be. They should, he should have gotten on the slave one with them and just ridden off somewhere. Like he should have just yeah. joined their merry band of thieves. Like this just seems right. like a really horrible end for this character. Like it's, it's very, very horrifying <laughs> in a way. Like they just left him to, he start a new colony on this planet? Like, I have to believe there's another hyperdrive-capable ship he just finds. Yeah, he's he got off somewhere. He's okay. This is actually a really good transition into the next chapter because the recap of the next chapter starts with this scene and something, as a, as a sound designer myself, which I can, I feel like I can say that now, as a sound designer myself, I had a, I always have a problem with the recaps of when they recap this scene that we're about to talk about in chapter 16, they did not apply the message EQ to this. So if you watch the scene at the end of chapter 15, it sounds like a transmission being recorded, like sent to Moff Gideon, where he's just being like, you have something I want. You may think you have some idea what you are in possession of. Basically Liam Neeson from Taken, like I will find you, um, blah, blah, blah. It's just that. Well, I mean, you, you understand the significance of the message he sent to Gideon, right? Well, he's just saying, like, I'm, it's just Liam Neeson, right? He's just saying, I'm coming to find no, you and take this you. No, he is reciting word for word the speech that Gideon gave to him back in season one when they first met. You may think you have some idea what you are in possession of. 
but you do not. But yeah, okay, I didn't really understand that. Um, yeah, it it took me a minute, but like this did sound familiar, and I was like, why, why is this so significant? I thought it was too corny, so maybe it should have tipped me off. The, well, he was reading it corny because he was reading it because he was mocking Gideon. I guess, but I just couldn't. I didn't pick up on that. I just took it for. I took it as fully earnest. And, uh, yeah. like, I wonder if, if who else picked up on that. Because I'm an idiot. I'm a full idiot. Oh, I think like, a lot of people probably forgot about it. I, it was so forgettable. I, I think everything he's, Moff Gideon has said in this has been super forgettable. I don't know. Um, but, yeah, anyway, the sound issue I had was that the recap for chapter six, from chapter 16 is that they play that message back but without the profile. So it just sounds like him talking in the room with Moff Gideon without any, like, weird EQ it's making it sound like a transmission. You may think you have some idea. You may think you have some idea what you are in possession of, but you do not. It means more to me than you will ever know. So that bothered me. Um, that's how the episode ends. And also how the next one begins, as you mentioned. So it kind of starts with that. But then it, it opens up on, on Slave 1 chasing after uh, like a Lambda-class T-4A shuttle. And inside are two pilots and that cloning scientist that we've seen a couple of times throughout the show. In the Who first is just, season. He's too distinct looking to forget about. Like he, he may be like right. not a big actor in terms of like being like, like Carl Weathers, like obviously has to come back. Like they're not going to show somebody's face and not come back to them if there's a famous person. But like he looked too weird for them to be, for him to just be like, a castaway actor that's only going to come back once in like a hologram or something like that. Like it doesn't, he looks, his glasses are just too weird and he's too distinct looking <laughs> like he's somebody's friend. I think he's a lead actor in that American gods adaptation that's currently running. I think I'm almost positive. I haven't seen it yet, but you look familiar. That's, that's what I mean. Like he's probably, he's somebody, but like, I just didn't know who he was, but he just looks so weird. He's got, he's like, it's like putting Adrian Brody as a bit part. And then just like <laughs> being like, Oh, well this person is just not going to come back. We're just going to have this really interesting looking person in this role with his very distinct style and just never bring him back. I guess. When are we going to get Adrian Brody in star Wars? He looks like he could be a good fit somewhere. He could have been Poe Dameron. I think. Yeah, he could have. Been. He's too old. Yeah, Oscar Isaac is just too handsome. He's too handsome. He could have, you know, he would have been a great DJ. He would like that, this, the slicer from Last Jedi. I think Adrian Brody would have been a really good. Benicio was like, was excellent and had the tick was great, but like he was almost distracting. He was like almost too Benicio del Toro for a Star Wars movie. And like Adrian yeah, Brody probably yeah. could have had that subtlety that like, uh, what's his name? Lars Santeca had. Max von Sydow. Is it? That's who played Lord Santeca. Then who's the guy who plays, who is in Knives Out? Oh, Christopher Plummer. Yeah, I get Christopher Plummer and Max von Sydow mixed up a lot. Yes, that's fair. Um, that's fair. They're two old men. One is not alive anymore. And when I <laughs> and when I saw Chris Plummer in uh, Knives Out, I was like, "Whoa, what is he? I thought he died." Like I just like or whatever. Like I, I just if I see Christopher Plummer and stuff now, like this year or something, I'm like, I thought he was dead. There's there's a certain resemblance between the two. I can, I can see old it. white man. Regardless, we'll do it. Um, anyway, so we have scientists Pershing. Um, this is kind of a fun scene. I guess in terms of standoff, you kind of see it coming from a mile away. Like it's kind of the thought you have at every standoff, like obviously firing a shot when there's a hostage being taken at such close range is like very, very dangerous. But if you don't care about the hostage, really who like you have nothing to lose by shooting this, the bad guy in the face, right? Like, 
Like, mm-hmm. and she clearly doesn't care about the scientist. Like, she scorches the side of his face, I think. Like, there's, I, I can't, he's holding his ear. Yeah. I think he, like, loses part of his ear. Yeah. Like, you, you want to say, like, I, I don't know if the actor was playing it for, like, that was really loud and my ear hurts. But, like, or it's my ear was burned off by a blaster bolt skinning it or something like that or, like, nicking me. And then they interrogate the guy. The scientist, again, comes across as very empathetic towards the child. Like, he, he's like, the child is here. He seems to care about it, you know, in a way, which is, I think, wh- also why we felt we didn't see the last of this guy after his first appearance. He just, he was too, they gave him too much time and too much, like typically you don't discard such empathetic characters. Yeah, I I can't get a full read on him because that is the way that it seems. It seems that he has a conscience, but his actions don't necessarily always back that up. I mean, I mean, he might just be like a Nazi scientist who's like in it for the science or whatever and like doesn't really actually care about it. Like he doesn't want to hurt the child though. Like he's, he's, scared about like too much blood being lost in the child like i really can't tell i really can't tell you're right it's it's a very hard to read but my gut says he's kind of dragged in against his his will like he's willing to talk and the imperial pilots are putting the gun to his head like he doesn't he mm -hmm. could lie to them he could try to entrap these band of thieves or whatever like you know he could he could be doing a lot but he doesn't and he tells them full on he like kind of wants the child to be rescued in a way but i don't think he has a lot of faith yeah he gets some good information like he explains how exactly how the dark troopers work he gives them all the information that they need to know basically to you know handle the dark troopers except for the fact that they can you know fly in space dark troopers are the robot iron men that got brought into the last episode third generation design no human inside yeah extremely boring um anyway they recruit bo-katan and Casca reeves they're like hiding out at some cantina this is a weird like i like i guess we have to have this like you call it an armor measuring contest in your notes i like that <laughs> um yeah we have like the face off in the cantina which just looks like the same cantina they've been using in this entire series they shoot her flamethrowers at each other. Well, let's be more specific. There's like a, a confrontation between Boba Fett and Casca Reeves because Bo-Katan and Casca Reeves obviously don't like Fett because he's not a quote unquote, you know, real Mandalorian. Wait, but what makes him not a real Mandalorian? Because I thought the last episode where part of our conversation was establishing that he was a real Mandalorian. We know this. They they apparently don't know this. Like they're they're operating under the same information that But but then Boba Fett has that line where he says, I never said I was. Well he's not. Like he he never even in that episode where we got some explanation of his background, he's not claiming that he's a you know, a straight up Mandalorian. He just he's says he has he the was, right to the armor. Is that what we're saying here? He has a right to the armor and his dad was a foundling, right? So like he was not raised up in the Mandalorian way, which is why these two and initially Din had a problem with him. Din is able to justify it by bending his rules by saying, okay, well, you've you've got some foundling heritage, so you're good. But they don't seem to think so. They may not know his background. Like it's, it's it, I think it speaks to the way Boba Fett disregards the rules uh, in, in he, how he doesn't care about the rules at all. And he's like, sure, I'll use the idea that my dad was a foundling to commandeer this armor. I'm not going to claim Mandalorian. You like, I never said I was a Mandalorian, you know, like he doesn't care. The Mandalorian background and creeds and factions, they, that doesn't matter to him at all. He doesn't care. He just wants his armor, but it matters to them. But he, you know, he, yeah, they have a little tiff. And so that's where like, there's some cool action and, you know, flamethrower action. It's, it's neat. And, uh, there was one line that was, that was fun. It's like, save it for the imps. I think there's been a couple of imps references in the show in the past, uh, maybe in the first season, but it's, it's still fun to, throw that in there it's such a funny weird like slur type thing because you see it in the squadrons trailer like war's over imp like when it's right. just, it's like such a diminutive statement um 
or like mm-hmm. such a, a weird thing but because like, in the real world like imp does have like a negative connotation sure. it is a slur towards a certain group of people but they use it in this in a different context but yeah it is weird to use I think for sure. Truly, yeah. If you understand it, I think it makes sense. And I think because they're only using it towards people who are of a certain height, <laughs> it's okay. Um, they So the Bogotan and, and Costco Reeves are now in to recover the child. And that is on the condition that the Darksaber is Bogotan's, and on the condition that Moff Gideon surrenders to her. Right. And that seems very like what's the word I'm looking for about her like pride. That seems like a pride thing that she's doing. Yeah. Ends up having much more specific consequences later on, which we'll get to. Yep. But um, yeah, she makes that demand and, and nobody bats an eyelash. Nobody everybody's like, yeah, like I don't care. We just want the child who cares. Just come and help us fight these people. So we have three Mandalorians four if you count Boba Fett, which we don't Fennec Shand and anybody else. Cara Dune. Mm-hmm. And that is our assault. And Pershing. <laughs> kind of what we have what happens is they come up with this kind of plan because they're not they have the slave one and they have this imperial transport that they commandeered earlier from the two pilots and the the, the guy on it so they are going to stage it's a, what's it called uh thor ragnarok uh run get help what was the scene you've seen thor ragnarok please I, i've seen it but i know i don't really dedicate marvel to memory okay so when thor and loki are going up in the elevator they're like what should we do how should we get out of this they're like uh, how do we how do we make our enemies think they're like run get help okay run get help which is very i think it's a very i mean it's not a nod to taika watiti but like the comparison is uh, like i i have a hard time not drawing it because like part of that scene is that thor and loki one of them pretends to be gravely wounded and they're like somebody get help and it's a way to throw your enemy off guard so that's basically what happens here they come out of hyperspace with the imperial shuttle isn't this the toy that luke has in or episode four no that's a t-16 sky hopper no it's not yeah he's, he's is it? yeah wow cool okay <laughs> i think <laughs> i mean maybe somebody tweet at me and tell me i'm wrong but but i'm pretty sure he's playing with the t-16 i guess maybe i only saw it from the one angle i just always interpreted it as a as a lander shuttle but you know i can learn new things yeah, yeah. <laughs> you get to fly t-16s in the rogue squadron video game which i think is like three dollars on steam right now so yeah, so you have Run Get Help. They come out of hyperspace. Slave One is chasing the Lambda Shuttle. Um, the Lambda Shuttle's like, no, we got to make an emergency. They're like, they're approaching, let me probably clarify this, they're approaching Moff Gideon's flagship. And they're and this this ship has different different bays, right? So there's like the the way that this ship is designed, there is one one landing bay that is like, like right in the middle of the front of the ship. Mm-hmm. The Millennium Falcon, without its escape pod, you know, the the way that we know it from the original trilogy, if there was like a, if there was a much larger ship, there would be a landing bay in the middle of the two uh, prongs in, in the front of the ship. Sure. That's sort of how it's laid out. The person on the controls on the ship is saying, no, don't land here. We need to shut, you know, we need to get our, our TIE fighters out land in this other one they're like no no we don't have time we don't have time so this is like a brilliant maneuver because not only are they able to get onto the ship but they're also able to prevent more ties from getting out to chase after fit. chase the slave one and that's a wrap on boba fett really right here is that they yeah, jet to hyperspace and he is not seen i feel like he could have been of much use in the scenes that ensue but hey we got to get him to the next thing so he's off in a hyperspace yeah. and that's a wrap on boba fett <laughs> Until the closing credit scene. Yeah. Well, yes and no. But that's that's it for him. This okay, so they have a crash landing in the hangar. Run, get help is successful. But they just decide, like, okay, we're in. They could have kept playing it. Like, 
they could have pulled a, a Death Star infiltration where they invite <laughs> people on board and steal their armor and then kind of sneak about. But no, no, they go straight for the full frontal assault here. And like they just open up the shuttle and they start just blasting people. It is There's no stealth involved. I think it's smart because like you don't want time for more to arrive, right? Like they're they're getting on yeah, the ship I mean, pretty it's a, fast. It's a decision. Theoretically, there's... Like I, I, yeah. I play this way in video games all the time. Like there, there are times when I want to be stealthy, and there are times when I want to be hard. It's and it's usually a matter of time. I, I play stealth. I, I'm playing Spider-Man again for the third time because I got the un, the remastered version <laughs> for PlayStation Five, and um, <sighs> you don't none of your trophies carry over from the first game, so. I have That's to play silly. the entire thing again on remaster edition and don't ask me why I have to do it. It just, I feel compelled to, um, you know, I don't know why it's, it's an illness, mental illness. We can call it. I get it. I get it. I play the same games over and over again instead of playing no ones. I get it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I have to play it again for a third time. And there are times when I'm like, you know, the game wants you to play stealthy and there, and, but like I'm going for like benchmarks and trying to combo, like get like as many combos as possible. And if you're playing stealthy, a, it's a lot slower and, and, be, you don't get any combo hits in there so i understand the need they wanted the combo hits that's really what they wanted when they're infiltrating this ship they, they they're going for the combos and not the stealth move um which is one way to play the game i think a lot of the fighting here is pretty forgettable except for the exception of this one scene where they do that uh the catwalk action scene which I thought was so brilliant. Like I, I had a, I had a lot oh, of fun yeah, watching that. Cool. So they have, you have, I guess to, to lay it out for you visually, you have three characters that are running across, four characters, I don't know. You have the team of people that are running across. The two people with jetpacks, which is Koska Reeves and uh, Bo-Katan, Bo-Katan, they fall, essentially like they, they fall off the side of this, which looks like a, a hanger, like a, a vertical hanger that leads off into space. They kind of fall off the edge of it. Like it looks skillfully done they kind of fall off and they kind of disappear and the people that are left on the catwalk up on our team they attract the attention of the bad guys and bad guys come and get flanked by the two jetpack people i thought it was like a very good use of flanking yeah. and kind of like tactical hiding i, I don't know it's was, it was fun it's it's not just like run and gun tactics and it was actually thought put into it so kudos to the stunt coordinators and the guys who planned that action out because yeah, you don't get I to like see that. much of that in action stuff anymore. Normally, it's just run and gun and less clever things. So while this is happening, the the dark troopers and some dubstep activate. <laughs> yeah, I like. <laughs> like I, I just thought it was so funny. Like anytime the dubstep or anytime the dark troopers are on screen, there's dubstep blaring, which is very. Um, it's it's like contractually, John Favreau's like, oh, well, whenever we show Iron Man armor happening and booting up, we have to do like a weird panoramic kind of like swoop around the, the thing. We have to show all the gear is moving and all the parts of it, and we have to play some weird heavy drum. Uh, heavy guitar, weird, abrasive music that's happening in the background. Just just show that these machines mean business. Like that's that's like Iron Man staple, and that is now the Dark Trooper staple. This is just so weird for me. Again, I can't express how boring this is. Well, I just find this interesting because like it it fits. Like it fits what's happening because obviously these are mechanical beings, so like it makes sense to have a a more electronic music uh, fit to them and also make it tense. So yes, drum and bass that makes sense. But also, it's still Star Wars and feels very different from any music that we've ever had in Star Wars before. So it works for me, but only kind of. It just it stands out to a point where it kind of takes me out of it for a minute because it's like Skrillex, really? Yeah, it's it's odd. I don't know what happens here. Like what happens? Like the the ladies keep fighting their way. Their their goal is to get to the bridge because they want to find Gideon, right? Right. In yeah. the meantime, 
Din is trying to find, find the, the child. Kid. Yeah, he knows where the kid is, right? And first he, he he locates the dark troopers, and one of them happens to get out uh, while the rest of them are are still stuck in their room. Yeah, um, it's a pretty tough fight actually. He gets like really messed up. It's a good thing he got his armor back because good god, like he gets his head slammed into the wall. Oh my god, like massively wall. concussed. This is another Iron Man thing where it's just yeah. like you know when you watch Iron Man and Tony Stark take those falls and those hits and like falling from the heights and being slammed around by villains or whatever. It's like the concussions this man would be facing are incredible. Never mind the flight itself. Just like just right. being pounded would just end your brain forever. It's like football NFL times 10,000. It's, it's insane. We're supposed to know that this Beskar armor is really tough. Like you can't shoot through it. Uh, it's lightsaber resistant, but also it apparently absorbs energy. <laughs> well, I mean, that's what blaster bolts are, are energy. Yeah, I guess so. So if it can take that type of energy condensed, then like, kinetic energy being dispersed in like a force in like a newtonian way is like probably going to be way weaker than a blaster bolt yeah but anyway it's a nasty fight he tries lots of tricks uh he uses his his little uh his little bees from his wrist rocket um which are always cool to to watch being used but they're sort of wasted on this thing he ends up killing it with a pike (laughs) the pike yeah i mean he just spears it but i mean we see what he goes through to to finish this one and there's a whole fleet of them behind the door Mm -hmm. so i mean if anything, I think this is an effective scene because A, it's a cool fight. B, it really illustrates that they have no chance against these things. And that, that whole fight scene is, is made even more tense because not only is he fighting this thing that he's having a hard time against, but also like the other ones are pounding through. Like they're making their way through the door. Right, which is very stupid in general. I just have to say, I think them punching doors to get them open is the stupidest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> In terms of like more so in the second door that <laughs> we see R2D2 can just turn to the left and just stick his thing into a terminal and open a right. door. Like how right. like are these dark troopers really that stupid and like poorly manufactured? These things are so dumb that they couldn't just punch through the glass part of the door and then tear off one of their arms to use to like pull the lever. <laughs> or in general, it's just like why don't they have a laser that can cut through Durasteel? Like yeah, like. A lightsaber can cut through a door, a blast door. Like, these things are really having that much of an issue. Like, I, I just don't understand. It seems like a very stupid thing. And I hate the dark troopers and they suck. Yeah, they're really not that impressive to me. Yeah, I'm going to keep saying that repeatedly. Um, it's going to piss somebody off. Well, I guess we should say the, the dark troopers get blown off into space. Okay, cool. It's alien. That was an alien reference, no? Which bit? When he ejects the things into space, he just hits oh, the airlock no. and, and shoots them. Um, they don't have the shot like they did it in, like they did in Infinity War. They do the same exact shot where Ebony Maw gets sucked out into space as they did with the Queen Alien and Aliens. Yeah. Like, they don't do that with the Dark Troopers, but it's I still think, like, sucking something into space, if you do it in a movie, you're just ripping off Alien. Okay. There's no question about well, it. Well, I will say this. I will say this about that. I will say that it is a trope at this point, and so whether or not they are directly referring to Alien or not, I'm not sure. But I will also say, as somebody who has been heavily researching Alien for the past week and a half, yeah. that alien was not the first to do it <laughs> okay and yeah, that yeah, idea was right. taken from somewhere else that's fine uh, fair I, I i appreciate that you thought that it was a reference to to that movie though i i wouldn't have thought that just because i something being blown out of the airlock is such a trope at this point but where where did it start let's find out let's find out let's go on a separate i can tell quest. you i i have notes on this somewhere else but i'll tell you later eventually let's go into that but not now so yeah cara dune is swearing i, I just put this in here because it's fun she uses dank ferric which is like a, a fairly well-known one this is why you wanted to go back to this group of people yeah yeah just because like okay so dank ferric is is like a in-universe swear that's been used in like the extended universe for a really long time but then she also added son of a mud scuffer which i'm not sure i've heard before 
Um, I only add this just so that I can put in the show notes a couple of articles on like the the history and the use of swears in Star Wars, just because they're funny. Okay. Like, I mean, our show is based off of one, so I figured this is worth bringing up. Sure. Okay. Uh, yeah, the ladies take the bridge. Gideon isn't there. <laughs> He's with the kid, and Din finds him there, holding the dark saber over Grogu. After promising to let the kid go if he's able to keep the Darksaber, he attacks Din, and then there's like a really cool fight between them, Saber to Pike, which I thought was pretty cool. But can we talk about the standoff that happens beforehand? Because sure. it's a it's a pretty good feign. I did see it coming, like yeah, the double cross. But I do like that he knew that like the wrist rocket had been shot already, so yeah. his payload is off. Like there's there's nothing he has nothing else there, so he can't just murder. Like they took they covered their bases here. And we also get information on like exactly how they're using the kid, right? We knew that they needed his blood for He got the blood. Right, but like they got what they needed, apparently. Yeah, mission accomplished. I, I don't know if that was a lie, if that was part of the the feign, but really is that all he needed? <laughs> <laughs> I thought the idea was they needed the kid back so they could like can keep him as a source. Emperor Palpatine comes back, so apparently they got what they needed, and I, I have no word, no reason to not take him at his word here. Well, we don't, we can't, you can't say, you can't say like that's the end of that because at present time they have the scientist. Well, so either they did everything they already needed to already, or there's still another shoot to drop. Maybe I don't know. Doesn't matter. Not like we're going to get it anyway, but um. Yeah, we have the fight. It's a pretty good fight. Yeah, I really like this one, actually. I mean, it's not like the most acrobatic or anything. A lot of people drew uh, similarities to the fight between the, the reimagined Obi-Wan and Vader fight that got put on YouTube a few years ago. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, I could see that. I mean, the hallway was pretty similar, um, but I mean, it is a spaceship hallway, so, you know, how, how much variety can you give them? Yeah. I, I like this fight because we're using a pike and we're using the Darksaber. Of course, some like live action Darksaber action is really cool. Mm -hmm. I think it's really fun to see this in live action specifically for like the light. Like seeing, they talked about this in at the end of the gallery series for season one, talking about bringing something that was in the animated series to live action in this way. Because like the, the way that the light works differently and they talked about how things in Rebels are stylized. And because the Darksaber made its first appearance in, was it, was it Clone Wars? Clone Wars. Clone Wars, um, yeah. Okay, so I the think. way that yeah, you know, yeah. everything that appears in, in both Clone Wars and Rebels is supposed to be taken as stylized. So when you bring it to live action, they're able to take some new liberties with it in the same way that something that was formerly in live action brought to animation, they do the same thing. You're able to sort of take it and like make it more realistic. And that's sort of a rare thing for Star Wars because usually it's the other way around. So being able to actually see that work in live action was really exciting. I mean, it's superhero movies to the max right there because a thing about I mean, that we learned with the first X-Men movie, the designers on that were like, you know, the choices were like, okay, you have these iconic costumes, like Cyclops has that skin tight sure. blue outfit with the strap, like the yellow strap in the nineties, at least Wolverine has the white with yellow, or the yellow with black stripes and like the big old mask and like, I'm sure the design team tried to come up with some way to make that work. But when like X-Men was like one of the first superhero movies and they were just like, we can't do this. You have to, we have to put them in something that looks cool. They ended up putting them in something in leather, which was really hard to move around in any way. <laughs> but like in general, it looked cool, not very functional, but it would look to, it was so much better than them put, trying to make the comic costumes look real. Cause you just couldn't take somebody in spandex seriously that way. Yeah. Like that's what mystery men was funny for. It was like <laughs> just the idea that like these costumes just don't work in real life. And so it's a little bit different with this because like this is an inanimate object. It looks more or less like it does in, in the animated series, but it's, it's a very different thing to, to bring a dart saber to, to life 
than it is, um, you know, like a character or a costume or something. And another thing that they had in, in the gallery series was that, you know, he was using a prop. He actually had like a basically like a plastic version of it that they're able to dress up in, in CG. But for use in some scenes, he actually had a prop a lot like they did in Star Wars back in 77 with basically the dowel rods for their lightsabers. Of course, this prop wasn't just a dowel rod. It actually looked pretty good. And I would love to have, <laughs> have a reproduction of that particular prop. Of course you would. But yeah, I, I, I don't know. I thought it was cool. I, I liked the, the, the sequence was cool. And the interaction between the blade and the pike was cool. Actually seeing the metal heat up was really cool. It was a cool scene, and I'm, I'm glad that the Darksaber's getting some real action. Okay, so Moff Gideon gets disarmed. I can't, mm-hmm. like, I have a really hard time reading Moff Gideon because he's so pompous and so full of himself. and But also, like, he seems to have a pretty good grasp on situations that, like, you don't know if that's all justified. That, like, I don't know if his losing here was intentional. I don't know if his yielding the, the Darksaber to Din is, like really if that was pre-plotted or Mm -hmm. if like what ensues is just a you know a lucky consequence of losing right i don't know if i I, it's really hard to read and they don't really resolve what's going on here so when he loses the fight and and din's like holding the pike up to basically his neck he says the line you're sparing my life well, that should be interesting. And I genuinely think he d- does find that interesting as a character because it seems like he's very into the interplay between people and playing people off of each other. That's just mm. sort of his character. That's his vibe. I guess I wonder if he's really sincere here in the sense, like, I just wonder if he's actually, like, surprised or if he's, like, he knows that the Mandalorian is weak now. Yeah, I think that is the question. I don't really know. So, so I guess now we learn about this rule, which is why Bo-Katan was asking to have Moff Gideon yield to her and to the Darksaber to be hers in the end was because there's another, I mean, we, this is the Harry Potter thing goes back to the dual fate script that we read, but like another Harry Potter thing is that the Darksaber, was this in Rebels? Like that if the Darksaber can only be one in combat. Okay. So it, I don't know. Let's, let's explain what the problem is here. And then I can dip into what exactly happened in Rebels because there is some contention with, with the history of this sword and with Bo-Katan and why she is not happy about what's happening here. So there's a lot of exposition in this episode explaining sort of the power of the Darksaber and its lineage. Like the power of the Darksaber is not in the actual weapon itself. The power is in the story behind it. And so the rule with the Darksaber is that whoever has the Darksaber can rule Mandalore. But that's only because you have to take the Darksaber from its previous owner by winning in a battle. And so that's where we get into like the Harry Potter comparison with the Elder Wand, right? It's the same idea. Like you only own the Elder Wand if you bested the last person um, in some sort of way. And in Harry Potter, like you can either beat them in battle or kill them in their sleep. It doesn't matter. You have to kill the person who previously owned it. So in Star Wars, they're they're using that same idea with the Darksaber. And Bo-Katan isn't pleased because the last person who owned it was Gideon. And we don't know exactly how Gideon got it from Bo-Katan, right? So presumably there's there's some more story to be told there. But when Din beat Gideon, he became the true owner of the Darksaber. So realistically, like, he is now, like, the ruler of Mandalore. Like, he, he could take that position if he wanted to. He doesn't. And he tries just handing the saber off to Bo-Katan. But she can't take it based on pride. Right. And that's stupid, first of all, which I think everybody who's watching is supposed to feel. But I do appreciate that, like, 
there's no like drama. There's drama here, but there's no drama on on the Mandalorian side where he's just like take it. And then they're like, no, it has to be one in combat. And then he just like, okay, like he does what a sensible person would do. Like, you know how, when you see something, it's like, it's not what it looks like. And you're like, well, just say what it looks like to explain the situation could be easily resolved, you know? So he tries to easily resolve the situation. He's just like, I yield. Like, he's like, fine, here we go. I yield. (laughs) Yeah. Like this doesn't matter to me. Then the two people who believe in tradition here, or maybe just Bo-Katan that believes in the tradition and Moff Gideon is just taking glee in this. Is he just like, He's like, no, 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 you can't do that. Like, you have to fight to the death. And it's like the stupidest thing in the world. And Mandalorian knows it, and Bo-Katan doesn't know it. She probably feels like it's stupid in this moment, but her her weird traditions have to be withheld right. and or like upheld. And it's very frustrating to watch because I feel like half of the characters on screen are with the audience, and the other half is just like, you guys are so stupid. Like, like wh- why are you... Why are you believing this shit? Just take take it. Just mm-hmm. take the Darksaber. It's yours. You can rule Mandalore. You got what you wanted. And so that's where the argument comes in, citing Rebels. Because in season three of Rebels, Sabine Wren finds the Darksaber. Darth Maul basically had it his apartment on Dathomir, and it was left there. She found it, and she took it. There's all of the history that we know from previous seasons, but I think Rebels is the one we'll focus on here. So Sabine Wren finds the Darksaber. It's hers. But because she didn't technically win it, I don't know. There, there was like more stuff like on Mandalore. Her mom explains to Sabine that she cannot truly lay claim to the Darksaber unless she wins it in combat. And she kind of does that when she fights this guy named Gar Saxon. He's the Empire's installed ruler on Mandalore. There's like there's so much in Rebels, man. You just gotta watch this show. Um, but she she basically she wins possession of the Darksaber and then she chooses instead to find a leader who will unite Mandalore. So like she doesn't want that job. And so she gives it to Bo-Katan. And now, like, the response to this is like, well, if she could accept it once, why can't she do it again? That's the question. I don't know r- really where to land on this. I, I-, I think there, like, there's probably something to be said about maybe since this already happened once, like somebody else technically won the saber and then gave it to her. Like, she was able to accept it that one time because, yeah. you know, Sabine won it for a cause. And the cause was to, you know, give power back to the Mandalorians instead of the Empire. And she didn't want to do that, so she was able to to yield it and give it to Bo-Katan, and at, maybe at that time, she was willing to accept it. But maybe the sure. second time is a little bit harder to come to terms with. It's like, maybe that gives her some doubt on whether or not she's supposed to actually be the leader, because people just kind of keep handing her the reins instead of her earning it for herself. So I think mm-hmm. maybe that's where this conflict is coming into to, to play but there is a, a decent question about what's happening but i i don't know i don't i don't find it that important at the moment i, I think this sets up a, a decent amount of drama and then at the same time it was sort of uh invalidated or at least punted down the road because of what happened next like the more interesting conclusion of this episode was bo-katan and mandalorian having to fight and him having to kill bo-katan or something and then next season he has to deal with being the leader of mandalore or something <laughs> that is way more interesting to me than what happened um, which we're getting to now. Dark Troopers come back. Does the Skrillex come back too? I don't. Yes, they. I, I wrote that they return because they have rocket feet and Skrillex. Of course, they come back. Like they have rockets on their shoes and they don't breathe. They're also robots. They can go into space and they have jets on their feet. They can do whatever. Like it doesn't. Like who cares if you eject them into space? Do we forget the prequels had ships that were droids? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's whatever. Dark Troopers are back. I'm still bored. They are marching in formation down the hallways and surrounding them. The doors are closed. The blast doors are closed to the to the 
bridge of this ship and it's very reinforced and they just start punching those doors and it's looking real grim and they're not even prying it open they're just straight up punching them yeah i mean there's it you'd think that prying would be easier because it's a mechanical like force that's holding those doors open and close who knows like with what star wars can do with gravity of like maybe there's no actual like rotating wheels or things opening and closing these doors maybe it's just some weird gravity force or something Mm -hmm. that keeps them open and closed but hey you know what let's punch these doors until they open which just seems so ineffective and we already know that the dark troopers are super powerful and that there's literally no hope of anybody coming out alive in this it is very much butch cassidy um and the sundance kid Except I feel like Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid didn't know that what the odds they were facing. These people definitely know the odds they're facing and that they're about to be massacred, but they're willing to go down. Because they have close, they have CCTV, like yeah, <laughs> they're exactly. on the bridge. They can see what's on the other side of the door. If holograms are a thing, why are CCTVs a thing at all either? Like you have this TV that you can make anywhere and three-dimensional. <laughs> Is this like old technology being phased out still? Like I don't. We're not supposed to question the technology of Star Wars. We don't see a lot of screens. Even the targeting computer in 77 Star Wars is like... Vector graphics. <laughs> yeah, it's it's just yeah. weird, weird tar- like tracking like that you... Anyway, um, I I can't... I don't have the energy to talk about this anymore. I'm so... I, I dislike this ending so badly. And I like this is an extremely, extremely polarizing yeah. uh, ending, I think. And all I saw... like I, I luckily didn't spoil this for myself. Um, I thought I had spoiled it for myself, but I didn't. It is what I predicted hap- would happen. I thought it would be Luke Skywalker they were calling to, and it turns out I was so wrong. I pre- it's, it takes it takes a big person to re- recognize that they're wrong, Jacob. And I am that big man. Yeah, I, I have to do it a lot, you know. So that's the only reason I know because I'm wrong most of the time. And I appreciate you admitting that you were <laughs> wrong. I mean, as soon as I saw that lone X-wing, I already knew. I was like, ah. <laughs> I have it wrong. Well, I I was thinking that maybe because okay, so the spoiler that I saw that I thought was a spoiler was that Kylo Ren or Ben Solo was trending on Twitter, and timeline wise, I think we're still at the point where Ben Solo would be an infant. Um, but I did not realize that, and so I thought we were going to see like an eight year old Ben Solo coming to rescue Baby Yoda here, and that's who I thought we were going to get. Um, we did not get that. No, that wouldn't have made sense. This is a little early for that. That's really just because Ben Solo is trending on Twitter and someone's like, oh my God, Ben Solo is trending on Twitter. Uh, let me see if I can get this right without our, our new character to the show, the, the timeline correction guy, okay. um, fixing this later in post. But I believe that this Worst character this scene takes place six years before he begins training Kylo, or Ben, rather. So this would make Ben probably like a toddler. If that, yeah, I guess. I mean, Bloodlines is probably a better way to determine his age because he's already off with Luke and Bloodlines and we're way before Bloodlines in this, I think. Yep. I, I, so I, I don't know what to say. Like Luke Skywalker shows up. Here, I'll, t- I'll take control. Give me, yeah, give me yeah, the ring. Please take over. So Grogu senses his presence. Like we get the, you know, the idea that Grogu senses something. He kind of looks up in recognition. Then we see the cloaked figure walking the hallways. He's using a lightsaber. We know this is a Jedi. It seems pretty clear based on the fact that like, chronologically uh this sits very close to return of the jedi this is a very similar outfit to to what luke had when he arrived at jabba's palace um he's green saber gloved hand yeah we we don't see the 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 color of the saber at first because it's a cctv of course it's only in black and white uh but then 
What I like about this scene, regardless of whether or not I thought this was the right move to make with introducing Luke into into the Mandalorian story, was that this particular scene is very reminiscent of that amazing scene at the end of Rogue One with Vader in the hallway. Which I feel like was less polarizing. I feel like it was much less polarizing to do Vader because he's a man in a suit and he was just doing awful things. And that's what we expect from that character. And... This, like, you just can't do that. Like, you don't have the ability. And it was mirrored, too. Like, I, I kind mm-hmm. of examined this one and then went back and watched the Rogue One scene to just see, like... It's been gift, you know? They have they have side-by-side gifts. Oh, do they? Cool. I'm going to have to find yeah, it. If yeah. you can find one, please let me know. I'll, I'll put it in the show notes. But I, I went back and watched it for myself, like, immediately after watching that episode. Because in Rogue One, we get the menace of Darth Vader because we're watching it head on We're like the camera is, is looking at Darth Vader as he's coming towards it. And we're backing up in the hallway. It gives us that sense that Darth Vader is coming at us. And for the most part in this sequence with Luke, we're kind of following him. You know, we're getting some views from the CCTV. We're seeing from, you know, a third party point of view, him taking out all these uh, robots in various ways. And it's very cool. But the way that it's mirrored between the two of them is great. You know, we've got the the red lightsaber and the green lightsaber, very similar, you know, close combat hallway sequences. But just the camera work, I thought was really masterful in the way that one, you know, follows a character and one backs away from the character. It really puts you in the right mood and, and gives you the right sense of like, okay, here we should be scared. And here we should feel like we're being rescued because we have this guy and he's, you know, we're with him as he walks through these hallways. Well, also, he's killing the guys that are opposing them. Like, I mean, the menace of Darth Vader is felt not just by the shot, but by the men screaming as he's right. murdering them. Uh, and brutally so. Not even just, like, kindly mercy killing them. He's, like, <laughs> throwing them against throwing ceilings against and slicing ceiling. them in half yeah. and impaling them. Like, Luke is just killing faceless droids. You know, it's it's very... There's, like, no moral question here for Luke. He's just killing these robots that he has no he's just he's just pushing things out of the way so he can get to where he needs to go these are things are minor inconveniences for him <laughs> he's hacking through all of them I, but it's cool because like we don't we didn't get a lot of you know we didn't get a ton of lightsaber action with luke like we think we do and we can look back and there are very yeah. very critical scenes you know him fighting vader and and whatnot but for the most part we don't get a ton of lightsaber action with luke well this is what we wanted this is what they wanted for for luke and last jedi and that we didn't get and i still don't think we have it because i think we have a cloaked figure we have a stuntman mm-hmm. running around in a cloak where you can't see his face doing things with no dialogue and no personality. It is just a, it, it's, it's fan service to the nth degree. It is yeah. I'll tell you what this boring feels like. shot. It is, there's no drama in it besides the music making you feel like it's epic. It's just a dude hacking away. There's no struggle, which is kind of, I, I will admit it's what we wanted. We wanted to see the all powerful Luke, mm-hmm. but it's just, it's just boring, you know, without any stakes. And then, you know, he gets to the double door and, they open the door and they they feel like it. The, the, somebody just knows to open the door. The Mandalorian just knows he's got to open the door. I would be like crapping in my drawers if this was the, me. I'd be like, oh my god. Well, and and Gideon was crapping in his drawers. Obviously, like he knew that this wasn't going to work out for him. He probably knows it's Luke Skywalker though. Like Moff Gideon knows who. Maybe not though, because I feel like the whole Vader thing was kept under wraps, wasn't it? Like the whole Leia, Vader, Luke kind of thing. Like, Luke was just a savior, the savior of the rebellion. Like, he wasn't... I don't, I don't know if it came out that he was Darth Vader's son in Bloodline. I mean, regardless I of whether or not that was like public I information, I, I think Gideon knows that if there is any sort of Jedi walking through his hallways dispatching his entire garrison of dark troopers, he's probably in trouble. 
so he grabs a blaster that was very carelessly left on the floor <laughs> yeah, and yeah. uh he shoots Bo-Katan and he really nails her. And so we don't know the fate of Bo-Katan. That's like the last time we see her standing for the rest huh. of the episode. I blocked that out. And then uh, he tries to to kill himself, which I thought was pretty, pretty serious for, you know, a Disney movie on, like this. I, I wasn't expecting to see him put the, the gun to his, his chin. Um, but Dune interferes and, and knocks him out. So then um, a little bump on the head yeah. you know din opens up the door for the jedi who steps out of the smoke and lowers his hood of course it's luke skywalker which you called i, I guess here we should we should talk at least just a, a tiny bit about the the effect because this is something that has been done in star wars now a couple of times which is you know de-aging and applying the face of of one actor to the stand-in i thought the effect was okay when he lowered his hood I was like, oh, wow. I mean, like, I knew it was Luke Skywalker, obviously, but when he lowered it, I, I was expecting to see another actor. Sebastian Stan, maybe. <laughs> That's who I wanted. I wanted a recast with Sebastian Stan. It would have made sense. It would have paved the way for a whole new series with Luke in it or something, like, to give people really what they want. It just, I think it's a huge missed opportunity. And I think the Uncanny Valley is just too deep on this one, man. I just think it's, I just think oh, it's... Oh, for sure. Like, once he started speaking... You, you immediately tell, like, oh, God, this is not good. But, again, I also want to recognize that in Rogue One, the uh, Grand Moff Tarkin thing that, like, I, you know, I went with my best friend. I don't remember his stance where he fell on it, but I do remember his, his wife was with us, and she didn't notice it was a CG person, like, so when some, at the end of it. Like, and that's because she never knew Moff Tarkin. Like, I don't think she'd ever seen a Star Wars movie before Rogue One. And... Like, I do want to recognize that, like, the biggest thing, any any grievance about this effect is fueled probably mostly by somebody who's seen Luke Skywalker at that age. Well, yes, but also seen any person talk with their lips moving. Yeah, <laughs> like, I mean, that was bad. It was bad. It just, it, it wasn't complete. Like, there was more work to be done there, and the work didn't get finished, and that's that's where they got to. But the thing is, here's the thing is that, like, the, why I know what I'm saying is stupid is that, like, when I said earlier, this is very polarizing, it's the truth. Like, there are critics that I really love and think are really witty and intelligent when they talk about film and TV, and they're like, I was, there's not a dry eye in the house when that happened, man. Like, I was like, what are you? <laughs> saying like even if you were just sad about the 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 departure that occurs subsequently where like you know the child leaves the mandalorian and goes with luke like even if that's what's making you sad any emotion i was feeling in that scene was offset by just what i just watched and like what they like this is not like you desecrated my childhood this is not that it really isn't it just it was just a bad effect and it just would have been better if they recast the role like there are people that would say you desecrated my childhood if they recast the role. And there are people that would say you de you desecrated my childhood if the effect was so distractingly bad. And in both cases, the person who says you desecrated my childhood is wrong. Like, it's stupid <laughs> that you're saying that. Um, so I will never go down that road. I will just say in terms of watching a TV show, I found it really distracting that this character looked like this and behaved this way. I don't know. I thought he was characterless, you know, like... That's sort of how Luke was. Luke was very stoic in Return of the Jedi, mm -hmm. besides the Vader fight at the end. That's why I think they thought they were able to make it work, because he was, that, that is sort of the vibe that Luke put off at that time. It's just the effect didn't follow. You really have to be able to back it up. Like, Last Jedi, Hamill was, like, so much more lively and vivacious and sarcastic, and the Luke from Episode Four and, like, and even Empire, you know, like, it was, he was just so much more of a human, I guess. And this was, like, he's still a robot, and it was such a bummer that he was that way um yeah i don't know yeah i don't know it for me like i didn't feel super passionate about 
this one way or the other. I'm like, okay, like, I guess if any Jedi is going to come pick him up, then like you said in previous episodes, it probably should be Luke. My qualm with this, I think, is the same as yours to a degree, which is that this was an opportunity for a new casting, somebody that could fill the role, whether it's Sebastian Stan because he looks so much like a young Mark Hamill or somebody else. And, you know, they, they had somebody playing Luke in this and they I looked at the guy and like he doesn't look that much like Luke Skywalker without the you know CG overlay but it just shows that somebody else could play this role and for them to bring in Mark Hamill to you know do the the de-aging and to do the voice it, I guess it's cool that like Mark Hamill was able to, to step into this again uh, it wasn't expected I think we all kind of felt at peace with the fact that the Luke was over with to, to varying degrees with the sequel trilogy, but sure. Okay. Bring him back. That's fine. For me, it's just the effect didn't work. You could have easily had another person, you know, stand in for Luke Skywalker. It would have made the hood drop a lot less impactful. I think the hood drop only works if you're revealing the likeness of Mark Hamill. I guess then, then just don't do it. Like my, my thought was dispatched with the CCTV. Don't go for a reveal. Have, the new Luke Skywalker have a shot of him getting out of his X-wing and reveal him there. Like, yeah, that would be cool. Like you've show, you're showing his Luke's X-wing. Like there's like, we are, no one know. else is going to fly a lone X-wing. Like, yeah, we know who it is dispatched with the, the, the pageantry and like the stupid robot drama, like just have him get out of the X-wing, pull his hood back. It's Sebastian Stan or some other new actor we've cast in the role. And, move on with your lives like and just have him hack through everything do close-up action scenes show like so something cool instead of like like imagine going like choreographing those action scenes and like and having to like i'm, I'm sure there's an, an aspect of it that's easier for the production team to deal with They're like oh thank god we're just doing using one stationary shot for each of these things and like not having to deal with like a moving lens or moving people on screen and that we're using one dude fighting invisible characters and there's not multiple people on screen right now. Like there's probably a million reasons why this is a lot easier to do, but in general, like a better, the better version of the scene is I'm just going to keep using Sebastian Stan. Cause I think he's a dead ringer. Um, Sebastian Stan gets out of the X wing. We just do like a, a battle scene of him like going through I, I, Of course, I guess we want to stay with the team on the bridge to show their reactions to it and like cutting back and forth probably wouldn't work. So the CCTV makes sense, I guess, practically. But in general, like it's, it's really just the, 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 the hood drop, which is just so bad and, and lame and a cr huge crutch for this episode, truthfully. Like, yeah, I agree. It's a crutch. I, I thought the hood drop worked for me. I mean, like it did what it, it, it was meant to do. I think they, that the hood drop itself was it was executed well. It's everything after that I, I took issue Fine. with. But I get what you're saying. I think that there's another way to, probably another way to go about it, but I, I that would have involved another casting and decisions that were made much further in advance. He's lucky he has the force to guide him because you don't get peripheral vision in that hood, you know? like Yeah, well, yeah, I guess he doesn't need it. So yeah, this was all sort of a, a distraction from like the main event, which was that Grogu and Din have to say their goodbyes. Uh, for this, Din removes his helmet to look at Grogu eye to eye, and that obviously is pretty meaningful to Grogu. There's like that whole little outreach where he like almost touches his face. What do you think the rule that he's like justifying here is? He's like, well, my back is to most of the people in this room, and I don't even know that this Luke Skywalker thing is human because it looks like a weird CG Muppet. Um, <laughs> I'll tell you what so I actually like, think. I, I don't know if you're asking me this seriously or... <laughs> I'm being joking. I I'm thoughts. joking right now okay, around, well, but I, I do think he probably... Yeah. Okay, let's, let's, let's hear the serious take. Why, why would he remove his helmet now? I think there's one 
point of view that you could take, which is that he's already done it once. And so it's a lot easier to do the second time. And the other is he just went through this whole thing with Bo-Katan not accepting a sword for really dumb reasons. <laughs> and he's like, you know what? Screw it. <laughs> These rules suck. I wish that they, I wish that they highlight, I think that's a really good way take on it. I think that if they highlighted that more, like if they just showed him glancing, because Bo-Katan's knocked out right now, right? Yeah, she's knocked out. Like, what if the Darksaber was dropped by her side and she's knocked out? And he, like, what if he, he just glances over to her and sees her knocked out in the ground? I, I feel like there's too many ways to misconstrue that. It's like, wait, what are they trying to show us here? But like, in general, if it's, if they were able to highlight that, like, he's abandoning tradition right now, because my take is that in, in truth, in no jesting here, is that I think he's trying to imprint on the, on the child. He's like, well, I want this kid to know my face. I think that's the truth underneath any other you know rationale that he might have i think that that's the truth but the journey you're saying the journey the journey that he's been on is that he's now watched somebody almost get what they want but fall victim to tradition and arbitrary rules whereas like that's that's what gets him to 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 act on the idea of wanting to imprint on the child the entire season has led up to this moment this exact moment and every decision that he's made every conversation that he's had about his tradition and talking to other people about you know what a mandalorian is and you know learning about other factions and and traditions and things it's all come to this and the practice of removing the helmet once in order to save the kid really sort of i think aligned his priorities in a much clearer way i think he really came to realize like okay i like there is a reason why he did that it wasn't an easy decision to make and so thinking about that even afterwards i think he realizes that grogu is the reason right like he he's willing to break his tradition for his new his new clan and this kind of goes back to like we've talked around this in a lot of different ways over the course of of this season but if we think back to when he meets up with the armor for the last time and she gives him his insignia which is the mudhorn he is now he now has his own clan like he has his he he's part of the mudhorn clan or however they, they classify that and the only other member of that really officially is his foundling which is the kid grogu so it's all led up to this moment taking off the helmet once, coming to terms with, you know, what it means to be a Mandalorian in different ways, and just how silly some of those rules are. It's like, what, you can't accept a weapon because you didn't take it for yourself? That's just, it's just dumb. I I think it's a culmination of all these things that we're learning along with Din about the Mandalorian. It, it, It leads to this very touching moment, which is sort of sullied by the distraction of luke skywalker who is just kind of standing there we get a lot of shots of the back of luke skywalker's head in this scene and you know what totally fixes this if this is mace windu that shows up right now you guys you just get samuel jackson back in the saddle he's just standing there the door opens it's samuel jackson he's got to take grogu with him we bring Samuel Jackson back. No distracting CG from Luke. Like mm. that's what's really going to fix this right here. I think right? the that's problem my... with that, and again, I know you're joking, but you can't say anything on the show without me taking it seriously. Is that of if that not. were to actually happen, you get a very different mood in the room because we know Samuel L. Jackson's take on attachment and you know feelings towards other people, as far as Jedi's go. So. He wouldn't be as understanding with the Mandalorian saying his goodbyes. Like Luke is standing there very patiently waiting for them to wrap up. Like he knows what's happening is important to both of them. And he lets them do it because he understands after all the things that he's been through, the importance of feelings and attachment and love. Like that, that's the whole thing. Like we learn a lot about the Jedi in the prequel series and we learn how wrong they are. And that's something that we continuously have to learn as, as history repeats itself throughout the, the whole saga 
that patience wouldn't have been there if it was Samuel L. Jackson. That's true. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Grogu, he seems hesitant to leave. Like, Din puts him down on the ground, and Grogu starts to waddle, and then, you know, turns around. We see him hugging his leg. It's, yes, it's very cute. Uh, we're going <laughs> to put as many of these cute Grogu moments in as we can. But then R2-D2 appears, which is also, I guess, another fun reveal like we've seen r2d2 appear so many times at this point that it it, it doesn't have quite oh yeah i stand. was unfazed i was like yeah, i mean it's just like okay he's, yeah, of course r2's here luke's co-pilot who cares um but then he forgets about din and chases after the droid which i think is cool well is that is that his fascination with like a new toy or like a blinking thingy or is that <laughs> like because he looks do you think it's because he looks like the little like a giant version of the ball on <laughs> the stick shift inside the razor crest and like do you think that's really it i think I that know. that's part of it but like but i also wonder if it's because r2 hung around the jedi temple when he was baby and like when he was like an actual baby baby yeah maybe maybe like i mean i'm not I think gonna read I, into that <laughs> well i mean that when it, as a note that you took i feel like that is that i when, when i read that note that you took i was like oh yeah, yeah that's because he recognizes r2 i so wrote it down because it was funny. funny i wrote it down because like he's like attached to din's leg until r2d2 appears and he's like oh shiny and then he just <laughs> waddles after the droid i think it's because they they know each other i think yeah, it's could be. because they've met before probably um and he hasn't met luke because luke was not at the jedi temple when he was hidden Okay, I mean that's that's then we just close in on the Mandalorian's sad, sad face, and that's the end of it. Yep, that's it. Okay, is that the end of the Mandalorian? Uh, no. He says, "What is it? What's that line?" He says, "Um, things are good, but they could be better." Who says that? Never mind. Have you not seen? Have you not seen Wonder Woman yet? <laughs> no, I I probably won't watch either. <laughs> Well, somebody got that. It's amazing. How the hell did I pull out a comic book movie reference that went completely unacknowledged on this show? I've seen Man of Steel. I think that's the only... I, I made it about 45 <sighs> minutes into Batman, Superman, and fell asleep. That's the last time I tried to do something specifically for you, Mike. That was a joke just for you, and I couldn't believe that you didn't get it. I guess you're a Marvel guy, but I, I thought you... When have I ever talked about any of the DC movies? I've never know. brought up a DC movie, unless it was talking specifically about how I fell asleep during Batman vs. Superman. Serves me right. All right, so yeah, that was the end of that. Um, this episode had a post-credit scene. It's the, I think this is the first post-credit scene in in this. The first season didn't have that, right? I can't remember either. Um, I truthfully don't think it matters. Um, yeah, it doesn't. But this one had one. And uh, so, is the third season of the Mandalorian going to be the Book of Boba Fett? No. Or are we going to get Dinjar? Is that a separate thing? Uh, it's a separate thing. So what happens in the post-credit scene is that we. We open up on Bib Fortuna, who's played by Matthew Wood. I truly hated that I knew that character's name. Like, <laughs> I think to, like 90% of anybody watching this, they're just like, oh, that's a guy. That's a weird looking dude. I mean, he had a figure. Like, you probably knew it from sure, the Sure, no, I mean, I read his ex entire biography in the character <laughs> guide uh, back in like 1997 or whatever. Like, yeah. I, I'm fully aware his name is Bib Fortuna. When he came on screen, I yelled, Bib Fortuna. And Aaron's like, what are you saying? Um... You know, I, I so like I fully understand that he who he that he was a person, but I cannot imagine anybody cared less um, or recognized him. You know, like any any casual viewers. Oh well, yeah, okay. Well, maybe some casual viewers. I they probably if you've seen Return of the Jedi enough times, like he's a he's a he stands out because he's a very creepy and like he scared me as a kid. Bit Fortuna like really freaks me out. Oh yeah, his teeth are terrifying and his brain tails are just like really weird. And his eyes. And then and when like, if if you read the the expanded universe, like the whole like a uh, brain tail thing is really interesting. Like cool. it's a 
it, they twitch, you know, like they have movements. Like in in the live action, they kind of just the uh, they fall. They they kind of sit there and hang the dangle in animation um, too. You don't see a lot of Laku moving around in, in animation. No, they kind of just swing back and forth. But like in in terms of the the, the novel, like X Wing novel, the Twi'le characters, they it'd be like so and so's brain tail twitch, and like like it was, it's a sign of like flinching. Basically, it's like a, it's a tell. I feel like in in the movies they're portrayed as like uh, extended sacks of cartilage. Whereas in certain media, um, they're described as having some muscle. Mm. Maybe not. <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah. So, yeah. So, they gotta have Ben some Fortuna kind of is being played by Matthew Wood, who's a, a supervising sound editor and a frequent voice talent across Star Wars media. So he's had a whole bunch of roles across, uh, you know, movies and, and TV before. Did he do the voiceover work too for this? Yep. Or was he just the stand-in? Yep. He did, I believe he did both. Um, so anyway, Ben Fortuna is sitting in what was previously uh, Jabba's place. They've put a chair there so he doesn't just have to sit on the slab. Well, he's not like a slug. He's got a, he's got a rear end. Yeah. <laughs> He's put on a lot of weight. <laughs> this is not the Bip Fortuna that we saw before. I don't know if it's a hazard of the job. Uh, it kind of leads the question, was, was Jabba once skinny? <laughs> well, I mean, every hut we've ever seen has been a slob. Like, yeah. even the baby slug that you see in yeah. Clone Wars or whatever, like, that is a, a large baby. Um, yeah. So I feel like, yeah, like, Jabba probably wasn't doing himself any favors. Like, he was pretty mobile in A, yeah. a New Hope, you know, moving around the Millennium Falcon uh, in well, each I, revised edition. That's not canon in my head <laughs> i mean george george lucas is the definitive canon maker here and if you if he finds it you know he, he burns those copies of those tapes if he finds them without java in there i like this portrayal of bib fortuna it really sells a lot like it, it tells you a lot more than is said because he's not on screen for very long but if you don't recognize him what's the point well, if you don't recognize it as Bib Fortuna, the guy who is whispering in Jabba's ear, like basically the worm tongue or whatever his name was. If you can't recognize Bib Fortuna, then the scene doesn't matter at all. Then you shouldn't be watching Star Wars. But it works. It shows that he's eating well. Obviously, he has sort of inherited the crime syndicate from Jabba. And I think that that fits because Jabba was like the last of the huts, wasn't he? By the time Jedi came around, I, I think he was... No, I mean, I mean, it depends, again, what we're looking at as far as canon goes. Like, because uh, canon, sure, maybe, but in terms of the expanded universe, there's a whole Hut clan that rebuilds the Death Star in the well, in the books yeah. that come after Return of the Jedi in the old... We're not talking about the extended universe. I know, but what I'm saying is that I find it doubtful that Jabba was the last of the Huts, even back in, like, the 90s and early 2000s before they revised the expanded universe. Okay. Well, there was a lot of Hut action in the animated series, and I know, you know, some of them were gone during that time. So I, I guess I can't remember canonically if he was the last, but at the very least, it seems like uh, Bib Fortuna sort of taken over. Uh, there are fire shots fired upstairs. And this sort of reminds sure. us of that scene in, in Jedi when Luke first arrives. Mm -hmm. Again, he says McClunky. I wish they would stop trying to make that a thing. I put a link yeah. in the description to the definition of McClunky. I, it's very funny when Connor makes people say it on his George Lucas talk show. But I, I, I hate it. <laughs> I hate that they're trying to make this a thing in the actual canonical media. What does it mean? Does it mean, please don't shoot me? Because <laughs> that's how I'm interpreting it, based on no. not reading anything. No, it does not mean, please don't shoot me. That would make sense. This will be the end of you? Oh, so, okay, I understand it. So, Greedo says it to Han Solo because he's saying you like i'm about to kill you this will be the end of you but bib fortuna is saying it because like if you do this you have no idea like what's coming down upon you basically right 
I thought I, I could be wrong. It's been a couple of weeks since I saw this, but I thought that he said this to one of his guards to like go see what was going on. Oh, maybe. Yeah. And that doesn't make sense to me. I in my head I revised my, my memory palace to, to, that he's yelling it as he's about to die, but yeah. I am most likely wrong. No, no, I'm pretty sure that wasn't it. So anyway, Fennec arrives down the stairs, um, kills all uh-huh. of Bib's guards, and then Boba arrives behind her and uh Bib addresses him. I think he says something to like the effect of it's good to see you and Boba doesn't have time for pleasantries and immediately shoots him dead, throws him off of the throne and takes a seat. And Fennec <laughs> walks back to the little, uh, you know, alcohol tray, the booze cart back behind the throne, grabs a drink and sits at his right hand. Cool. Boba Fett coming 2021 book of Boba Fett, but it's not a book. It's not, it's, this will be a live action TV show that takes place within the confines of the the Mandalorian, which I think is interesting, but also falls. Wait, takes in line. Pl- wait, wait, wait. Takes place within the confines of what is that? You within mean the, the timeline. timeline? Yes. Okay, so we're probably going to get him getting out of the Sarlacc and everything, but it's not like it's going to happen in season three of the Mandalorian and like something like that. This is a separate entity. It's probably going to be more along the lines of the Obi Wan series, where it's um, like a three parter or four parter, maybe. I don't know. I mean, it's interesting you say that we're we're going to see him coming out of the Sarlacc pit. I don't get that idea at all and maybe that's just because they played it on the stinger of boba fett and fennec shan presumably after the events of what we just saw on screen no it's i i can i would put money on the idea again i've I've put money on boba fett things before in this season of the mandalorian and lost horribly but if i had to put money on it i would say that they're going to do flashbacks it's going to be the book of boba fett it's going to start where we left off in the stinger scene and do jump backs to him getting out of the sarlacc and like and what he had to go through and like kind of all those questions we had about like, wait, if he had the slave one the whole time, why is he still on Tatooine? And why isn't he just attacking the guy who has his armor? Like, I think they're going to have to answer those questions. And I think that's what the book of Boba Fett is probably going to do. So my question for you on this scene in particular, based on like the what happens with Boba Fett from then on, uh-huh. is he taking over the crime syndicate? Did he really just want to kill Bib Fortuna? Does he just want... Uh, you know like some prime real estate <laughs> like what is the what's the motivation here and what happens next well he's mad at jabba for something well yeah they didn't exactly I, come help when he fell into the sarlacc pit no but i mean who didn't lando or han kick him into the, the accidentally into the sarlacc pit yes like, and jabba died like he can't have any qualms with jabba but Bib, he can, because Bib survived, obviously, and has been doing quite well for himself, but didn't think to come back for Boba Fett. Based on the Boba Fett appearances in the comics, Boba Fett is just a guy who's trying to take what he can when he can. So I feel like he's, like, he probably saw something on Tatooine. He saw, like, an opportunity, like a hole in the wall that he could get through to power grab. He's like, well, like, the crime syndicate is being run by this incompetent Twi'lek right now who just, you know, usurped uh Jabba's thrown after he died you know like like I, I think he just he's like well this is easy this is low-hanging fruit or like I can do this yeah but what's he gonna do with it because you take some heat when you take over a crime syndicate we've seen this before well that's what I hope is happening I hope that the hut because the hut family is like a, the hut family is the crime family basically like that the, the huts are gangsters and they run crime syndicates all over the galaxy and I feel like that's what we're about to see is that like I would like Boba Fett to go to war with the huts and I'd like to see more huts and stuff like that I just don't know what else is going to happen. Like he's got to defend his new throne or whatever. Or, I mean, it's nice that we're probably going to get the Mandalorian and this pretty close to each other, right? Yep. Yeah. I mean, there have to be. It's going to be a big year. I, it's just going to. It's so much stuff. But yeah, end of the year next year. 
I have a couple of questions just on, you know, next season, like at large, what happens to some of the other characters? Like what happens to Bo-Katan? Like, do we think, I mean, obviously she's not dead. Like they only left that open because she's going to live. It would be silly for them to, to leave that open if she was just going to appear to be dead. There, there's still some conflict there uh, with her and Din and the, you know, the dark saber and what that means. Any thoughts on that at all? No, I mean, I, I just, I mean, they're clearly setting up a conflict between Bo-Katan and, and the Mandalorian, like, I don't really know how it's like, I don't want to fight you is going to be the entire eight episode arc, uh, you know, with some villain of the weeks thrown in. I don't know. So I, yeah, I mean, I don't think, I think Grogu's done. I think it's a wrap on Grogu. I think, <laughs> I feel like they probably like the second people started calling him baby Yoda, which is, I don't know if that was an inside term or if that's just what Twitter called him. It's just, yeah, the, the masses because he he's just been the child and like all the merchandising he was called the child so clearly they planned on calling it the child and not baby yoda yeah. and i almost feel like there was a resentment against the child a by giving him a name this season you know and you know very definitively giving him a name um and also just uh getting rid of him in this last episode i feel like there was some resentment towards that the sweeping like the focus of on baby yoda of this whole series I don't think so. I mean, watching the gallery series, at least for season one, that wasn't my interpretation. Well, care had to go into it, but they made season one before anybody started calling it Baby Yoda also. Yeah, that's true. Unless somebody on the gallery series was calling it Baby Yoda. Well, I haven't gotten to season two. I don't, you know, we'll have some more idea of, of exactly how it was. Right. You know. But I mean, if, if production was calling him the child the whole time and yeah. nobody and maybe the, the prop designers were calling him Baby Yoda as a joke or, or if somebody said, oh my God, it's Baby Yoda for the first, like the first person who yelled, oh my God, it's Baby Yoda after the first episode of season one is like after that moment the producer's like oh god what have we done <laughs> that's well, what i'm imagining it, it's interesting I, I do wonder where they're going to go with this because either we're not going to get any more grogu or we're going to get a lot more video game luke and i have a hard time believing that they're going to do that so it's a question up in the air um i guess this could just be a season when when din's off on his own and there's some other adventures like it's going to be really strange because we're going to Mandalore, man. We're fully going to Mandalore. And we'll have some Villain of the Weeks on the way, but we're going to Mandalore. That's going to be the main conflict, and he's going to end up taking the, the throne begrudgingly or getting or destroying Mandalore. I don't know. We, we know that this is going to run concurrently with Rangers of the New Republic and Ahsoka, as well as the, the, you know, the new series that they announced, the Book of Boba Fett. We've got four shows that are all operating within the same timeline, according to the producers of these series, so how does that how does that play out? We've got we've been introduced to all these characters, but they're all spinning off apparently into their own shows. And if that's the case, like we're left with a, a fairly small group of people. And I I, I think maybe you're right. Like we kind of have to like with who's left. We're we're not getting more Ahsoka in Mando at least for a while. Uh, Boba Fett is presumably off to do his own thing because he's he's fulfilled his bond, his promise to rescue the child. He doesn't have anything to do with Mando for now. That leaves us with the other Mandalorians. <laughs> we got Bo-Katan and Friend. Then we've got Carl Weathers and, and Cara Dune back on whatever planet they're on. And we don't know whether or not they're going to have any role in Ranges the New, New Republic or not. It's interesting. I really don't know what to think about The Mandalorian for next season. I have ideas about these other shows, but I, I don't know what's going to happen for The Mandalorian itself. Seems very unresolved. I don't know. So, I mean, there's something going to happen. I mean, what if, what if, what, what if, what if there's a, a cinematic universe being created right here? 
like a television universe being, and we're going to see it culminate into this epic conclusion. We know it's going to do that. But it's also the joke is that it's a, we are in a cinematic universe that's been spanning 40 something years, you know, like it's just... (laughs) Yeah. Like like the idea that they're like building upon this thing like well we're we're gonna like this is gonna be an epic conclusion all these characters are gonna collide and and it's going to still be Star Wars it's like you know it's not like Avengers where like okay we're gonna do like seven superhero movies and then have them all collide or whatever this is just you know it's like we're gonna do seven superhero seven Star Wars series and we're gonna have them all collide it's like okay then you just made a Star Wars thing it's fine we have this and you're also just using a bunch of tropes from the original trilogy like like again. I mean, final thoughts on this is just that too much OT, you know, too much, too much original trilogy stuff happening here. You know, like the whole Mandalorian thing was supposed to give us a look at the Star Wars universe from a perspective that we never saw. And I guess you could argue we got that, but I also think it pivoted to a really boring place where just it became super reliant on stuff we already recognized, which is not what I wanted from this series. I think overall, I really liked this season a lot more so than the first one. I think it did go into a lot of interesting directions and we had a lot of cool, interesting side adventures and we got some cool, um, you know, character exploration for characters that I probably otherwise wouldn't have been interested in. Bill Burr being primary among them. What I do think this season did well is it set up all these other shows. That's probably the intention. And because I don't know where any of those shows are going to land, I have a hard time of saying like how well this works for for all of them at one time or for the Mandalorian series itself. But it did a, it did a good job of spinning stuff off. Like it got us to care enough about you know Boba Fett again that we can have a show, and it's not gonna it doesn't have to be a a bounty hunter show necessarily. Like it can be something else because we have this new take on Boba. Same thing with Ahsoka. Like we got our first live action look at Ahsoka Tano and we get an idea of like what her, her mission is. She's looking for Thrawn. And so we get an idea of what's going to happen there. Rangers could be a lot of stuff. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know where to land on that yet, but I, I, I think yeah, it, I have no feelings on any of this stuff. Like it's yeah. just, it's going to happen and I have stuff to do. So <laughs> I'm not really <laughs> anticipating any of it at all. Yeah. Overall, I, I like the season. I think it, I think really the first two seasons of The Mandalorian really work well together. They still feel very much in the same to me. I, I think if like we're going to continue to get stories about The Mandalorian, Din Jarek, like if we're going to keep continue following him, we need to get chapters of his life. And even though every episode of this is is kind of a chapter, I'm I'm looking at these as as sort of volumes. And I feel like the first two seasons of this is really one volume. You know, it's the story of of him saving Grogu and getting him where he belongs. That That's the story that this is told. His arc is basically fulfilled insofar as Grogu. So what happens next is sort of up in the air. And I think this leaves a lot of, a lot of opportunity for him to explore different things. And because the show is called The Mandalorian and because this season went in so deep on different aspects of Mandalorian culture and all of its fractured cells, I think it makes sense, like you said, to explore that a little further, maybe return to Mandalore, dig more into the Darksaber lineage and exactly what's going to happen with Bo-Katan. Like there's a lot that could happen here. And who knows that that could mean bringing in other, other characters from shows past. Like I think Sabine I Ren is due to see some live action screen time. I, I, I think there's a lot of opportunity for the next season. That's probably why I can't think of what exactly is going to happen, but I don't know. Overall, I, I think this season worked for me. I liked all the characters. Um, there are a lot of cool standalone episodes. I still, I still love that frog episode, <laughs> the one on the ice planet. 
such a good episode. Yeah, no, I mean, the standalones, I think, definitely were a lot better than before. I think that the Monster of the Week episodes are stronger in season two, and I think that the story arc, like the the child arc, we got more, we got it fleshed out more, but it didn't feel exciting. Like, wasn't exciting to find out what they were doing with the child. It wasn't exciting to find out the child's backstory. It wasn't exciting for me to find out the child's name. Like, it just, like, the mystery was like was cooler to me than the payoff. I guess in the end, I feel like the the name thing was really only going to be exciting because of the Baby Yoda phenomenon that happened outside. Like, there was only, like, a meta expectation of that. Otherwise, it's just like, okay, we're just getting his name. Like, of course we don't know his name because he can't talk. Like, how are we supposed to know his name? But because of the whole Baby Yoda thing that happened in, you know, the world that we live in, it became a bigger moment than I think it was supposed to be. Right, and that's what I think they had to write this thing off. They're just like, we can't go any further with this child. Hmm. We can't. I can't deal with Baby Yoda merch. They're probably just fighting off, like, sending off cease and desist after cease and desist to random t-shirt companies for printing out Baby Yoda stuff. Well, I think that's going to be it for us this time. Uh, Thank you for listening to another episode of Man the Fodder. If you missed them, check out our previous episodes on Season 2 of The Mandalorian. And while you're at it, listen to our episode on Duel of the Fates and last week's Disney Investor Day Roundtable with Bobby Darling. And when I say last week, I mean last episode. Um, Time is a flat circle. We're now in 2021, so... Yeah, it's totally, everything's perfect now in 2021. Don't you worry, everybody. Everything's so much better. Episode <laughs> notes, you can find them on banthafodder.fm slash episode slash 39. Um, and follow us on Twitter at banthafodder.fm. And that's that's really it. That's all we got. You, you're all troopers. You're all stormtroopers for staying around. You're all stormtroopers. Please share this with your stormtrooper friends. As we know, uh, stormtroopers are, are buddy-buddy with uh, with all their homies. So if you like the show or any of our other episodes, please share it with your friends. That's how podcasts get out there and, and get love. So go ahead and do that. And uh, until then, keep your stick on the ice. <laughs> Is that another Wonder Woman reference? <laughs> no. It's a red-green show. It's even... <laughs> you know what? I couldn't <laughs> Okay, that's it. I'm done. (laughs) We'll see you next time. Okay. I mean, it's a good spot for the theme song, I guess. Yep. (laughs) The theme song? Oh, sorry. For for the Mandalorian. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, the Mandalorian theme. (laughs) You meant for Panther Fire. No, we don't need to drop the theme song here again. I'll do it anyway, though.